Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You are a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to uh, the final weeks of summer as kids are not yet back in school, but heading back to school. It's the final countdown. That's right. It's a very famous old Jewish song, the final countdown <laughs> to Messiah uh, and oh, to, the I, oh, yeah, to the school year. Yeah, to the school year. And that other voice that you're here is none other than Malka Fleischer. Yes. Malka, welcome to here the I show. Am. Thank you very much. Malka, today's show is very special. We have a long show today, uh, as you're going to hear uh, after the Malka segment, uh, a fabulous, and everybody that, that heard it live or saw it on Facebook and on YouTube uh, told me that, that it's a really important interview with uh, Dr. Mordechai Kedar. Brilliant. About, He's a brilliant man. That's right, about the UAE Israel Abraham Accords, uh, the so-called Accords, uh, the Abraham Accords of the uh, peace. Now, this is a word I am I am allergic to completely because a in this specific case, it's become a trigger term. It's a it's a trigger term. Thank you, Malka. And it's not really true since we weren't at war with right. with the UAE, so we're not having a peace. It's not a peace accord. This is a bilateral diplomatic. It's the opening of diplomatic relationship. Right. It's a regional alignment. It is a you know bilateral diplomatic arrangement, as you said. Right. And it's not no peace because we weren't at war. True, uh, but I think we all know that there's like a friction, and so what they're saying is let's get rid of the friction. It's not just like oh hey. Look, there's a country we don't have a diplomatic relationship with. Let's go do that. Why haven't we even done that up until now? Fine, but let's say you it's have like a let's say we're a, not we're purposefully not diplomatizing together. Fine, let's say you had an uncomfortable moment with a friend and a family member, but not a huge one, but an uncomfortable moment. Do you afterwards have a sit down negotiation for? Uh, uh, you I don't know? know what family you're in. Uh, in some families. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's not the right word, peace, and it also is a trigger word because it means something. I do not think it means what you think it means. It does not. It means something else today, which is that it, it means land giveaway and the cessation of Jewish sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, which I really want to uh, minimize and really maximize what this is about, which is regional uh, uh, understanding. And by the way, Kedar, uh, that you'll hear on the show today, his thing is this thing is actually all about Trump and about helping Trump get elected. Because the UAE wants his anti-Iran stance, and so they want uh, him to succeed, because they understand that that do means. Do you think that's really going to affect American elections, though? Do you think Americans are like, well, I don't know, I might vote Biden, but Trump did do that Israel UAE deal. Uh, I'll, I'll, so, so, so you you made it binary. Uh, not binary. You made it binary between vote this or vote this, but that is not, in fact, what voting is about. The other option within voting is: Do I get out of my couch and vote, or do I not? Okay. And that is a huge part of. So you think that some people are going to be like, "Dang it, I worked a double shift last night, and I know that I don't want to go out to vote today." But there was that Israel UAE deal, and so I'm going to get up and do that voting. Regional stability, Malka. People or want that. Or do you think it's that person who's like, well, I would like to vote for Biden, but I'm so tired. And I don't like Trump, but he did that Israel-UAE deal, so I won't vote. Yes, I think there are people like that. Really? I think I think there are people like that. And, and I want to tell you what my Christian friends say. Check this out. 
And when I say Christian, I'm talking about uh, evangelical American Christians. My good friend Eric said. The voters. Yeah, the the regular American voters. You know what they say? No. Listen to this crazy thing. My friend says to me, we've got three issues. Israel, marriage, and abortion. Really? Those... Now those, those are, are the three issues. The, now that's within a certain hardcore evangelical world. But wait, but wait, but if you think about that, by the way, do you see the relationship between those three things? The relationship is like Bible, Bible, like like a biblical outlook. Like marriages between men and women. Let's have a sanctity of life. And Israel is this thing that is a that is a beacon of light for us of life. And it, it's it's a related thing. It's just a very interesting thing that I I I'm not making this up. This is what what a, a a Christian leader told me. I was fascinated, and also you know what fascinated me is that I was like, this is Hebron. Hebron is life of family, family life, marriage, hmm. life cycle, babies in Israel, all rolled into one. Okay. Anyway, it's a thought. Any speaking of babies, Malka. Yeah. Uh, your baby boy El Azar. Yes. Uh, had his ninth birthday yesterday. Anymore. That's right. He's not my our littlest one, as you well know, Ishai. Yes, he's not our littlest <laughs> one. But but he is still my baby. Yeah, he he's one of your babies, and and he had a nine. He had a nine. He had a nine. He and turned nine. Speaking of Baruch family Hashem. and children, yeah. we went yesterday bowling. Right. So in I, Jerusalem, right. because El Azar is born in the summer. School starts September 1st generally in Israel, almost every year. Right. Um, and because of that, Elazar, who was born like a cu- like in the Jewish calendar, that's the calendar we really celebrate. So I can't say it's like two days before school starts because sometimes it's three days, sometimes it's a week before school starts. Anyway, he, right before school starts is He's his a summer birthday. Baby. And because of that, we like never really end up doing like a straight up birthday party Mm. we certainly celebrate and we oftentimes go on vacation and we take you know him and we also take him out to a restaurant and we get them to do the happy birthday cake you know at the restaurant and we like buy him a present and stuff like that we make it fun but he really really wanted he's been asking me for a couple of years to do like a birthday party with friends when leah our daughter um had her like eighth or ninth something like that birthday we took her bowling um, at, there's not that many options. There's basically one bowling place in all of Jerusalem. And but we, there is another one in Beit Shemesh. There's one in Beit Shemesh. That one's pretty new, I think. But there's one place in Jerusalem that we went to, and I came back from there with such a crushing... Crazy headache. F- like, brain-flattening headache <laughs> that I was like, I kind of probably have to bring a korban at the Beit HaMikdash for the neder that I made that I cannot ever go back there. But... Um, anyway, so Elazar wanted to do something and I wasn't sure what to do. And I thought to myself, you know what? It's been a few years. Let's do us some bowling. So I asked him, he liked that idea. And then Leah got into the kitchen. She made these like, so I like to do, I like to decorate birthday cakes for the kids' birthdays. You know, you send them with a cake off to school for their birthday and stuff. I oftentimes go a tad overboard, but because I like it, I like the cake decorating. Cause you like themes. Monica. I like themes. You're I like celebrations. You like themes, you like dates. I like dates, I like celebrations, I like parties, I like happy times. And you like happy times that are have dates, which themes that are celebrations. <laughs> Those are the things Correct. you like. Correct. Right. So anyway, our daughter Leia, who has unusually fine motor skills, I would say, has like taken upon herself this cake decorating. She's kind of arty. So she took upon herself to decorate uh, Elazar's cake this year. And we didn't do cake. We did cupcakes. And we deci- and Leah decided that she's making like bowling pin 
fondant little shapes and bowling balls and all this stuff. And she went crazy and she made the, she made all these like crazy awesome cupcakes. And we took them to the bowling alley. Now, before we went to the bowling alley, I called because that's the responsible thing to do. Now, I wasn't going to, you know, back in the day when you were an American kid having a birthday. So your mommy would call the place, some fun place of kids. And then there would be like a room right where you like have the party and that's your party and like woo and you blow the kazoo thing sure and, and like you're having like an you know i had i didn't grow up religious i had one at mcdonald's i remember very significantly anyway so i called them being like i want to make a birthday party for my son at the bowling alley and they're like great come on over and we're like do i reserve anything they're like we don't do reservations you show up so I was like, okay, well, you know, with coronavirus and everything, probably it won't be a big deal and we'll just like get a lane and it'll be fine. Anyway, flash forward, we get to Jerusalem, we get to the bowling alley. Okay, so I always thought that the most stressful job, the, like the most stressful occupation was air traffic control. Uh, where you have to manage the landings of all these planes. But I realize now that I'm wrong. It is the guy who signs you up for your bowling lane in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem amongst a... a, a uh... They have... The person who runs this bowling alley is either an absolute genius or should go to jail. Basically, there's like two people at this bowling alley who actually work there. They all... Incidentally, this is a bowling alley. They all work as if their job is really important. They're like, they're so on it. There's there's so many times where you get to a place and you like, you get the person who's like smacking their gum and they don't really care and their eyes look all glazed over. Not at the bowling alley in Jerusalem. Well, well I don't think people understand what you didn't get to the punchline, which is how many people there, there were, were and how serious everybody there were was 16 there. 16 lanes, I think, at the bowling alley. We got there. They were all full of like, Full, full, not like two full guys. Full of what? Like, uh, Haredi families. Ultra Orthodox families. Ultra Orthodox and some, you know, religious Zionist families. It was basically religious day at the bowling alley, which is every day there. Maybe okay. I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing probably, but it was like there were guys in like beckishes. Like oh, it yeah. was like, I think I heard Yiddish. Like there was there was a lot of super from kite. I saw a Mishnah. Sitting on the side, a little one of those full. Yeah, I missionas. saw a dude learning. I saw a dude learning. Tomorrow. Anyway, the pizza place there. Dude was with the beard was in line for the for the air hockey. Was learning Torah. Wow, I saw that. I don't and he know. He was like an older guy. Yeah, it was really. And this guy who's signing you up, I think he was Arab. He spoke definitely fluent Arabic. He's like, yes, yes. He's like answering everyone. Doesn't get frustrated. There's the line. There was no line. There was a throng. There was a horde. Okay, and everyone with eyes that were like, I need my this, whatever, some kind of bowling related thing, <laughs> right? And I thought to myself, and he was really nice to me, by the way. He was just really calm. He got everyone's thing done. He didn't yell. He didn't make faces. Nothing. Nothing like, like a glint in his no eye twitch. that was like, this is so annoying. He was just like, yeah, I'm on this bowling. <laughs> and like, you lady, you're going to get your bowling experience. In fact, in fact, our lane was fine. Until like frame six or something. Yeah, and then it were froze. Jammed. That happens. Yeah, but they took care of business. They took care of business. And they were like, I came back there twice because there was a problem. And they just didn't even like bat an eyelash at me. And then I realized that if I ever go into politics, I'm going back to that bowling alley. And I'm taking the whole staff. <laughs> yeah. 
and they're all going to work in my office. Those people were like, they're handling everything. Kids are sticky. They're like demanding people getting in front of each other. And these people. So now there's an arcade, right? Associated with the bowling alley. And the and the Mahadran pizza and a Mahadran place. pizza. So we got Mahadran. We had to wait thirty minutes. Now, now I was thinking to myself yeah. when I saw it at a distance. I was like, okay, this is going to be one of these places that serves cheap cheese, right. cheap pizza. It's going to be one of those like papery. Sometimes you get it in Israel, like bad pizza. I'm like, this is going to be oh, bad that pizza. flops when you pick it up. No, the other the kind that feels like a cardboardish type of type of dough bread, like bad dough. Anyway. Got the Not pizza. It was awesome. It was such a good pizza. Fries was, were crispy. Fries were crispy. Now I paid for it. It wasn't exactly cheap up in there. Right. But okay. It is what it is, right? You're at the bowling alley and they, they got you locked in. This is in Talpio, the in industrial Talpio, zone. In the industrial zone. We even found parking, like nice street parking, yeah. which wasn't even bad. Yeah. That was like the big fear all morning. I was like, oh, Hashem, please. <laughs> God of parking. Just That's right. Just give me a parking spot. I want we, we have to make that sticker. Oh God, who has parked? I want to make like a bent, like some kind of davening sticker that you yeah, put in your yeah, yeah. inside he, your car. He like, who hath parked our people forty-two times in the <laughs> desert, he who granteth uh, 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 Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, parking in Aram Naharaim. Right. <laughs> we ye, should do it. Yeah, Isha, we got to do it. We That's really right. should do it. We've been talking about That's it for right. a long time. Ye who gave the fiery chariot of Elijah parking before he entered right. it. Please, oh God yes, of Israel, grant me parking. give us, let us park in the land of Israel, in your holy city, Jerusalem, yes, your I abode. Love it. I love and it. if you give us parking, we shall surely work park to give you in Jerusalem. That's right. We shall surely work to bring your presence back to Jerusalem and find make it park in the Temple Mount. Anyhow, so we did our bowling. It was really fun. Also, bumpers were not optional. You must take bumpers. All the lanes except for two lanes had bumpers right. obligatory. Originally, I was like, ah. Uh, bumpers bumpers okay just go with the bumpers do it it's oh, more fun incidentally there was one kid who got second place we took so we took elazar's son three of his friends and our our daughter and our little son uh israel who's five and you and i shared one you could only play seven people uh in a in a lane so we took all those slots there was one kid the kid who got second place he had a whole strategy of like hitting the bumper and then hitting the pins. Yeah, no, he he never not uh, he hit the never bumper. not hit the bumper. I f- I, I sent some 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 fast ones down the middle. Yeah, you got robbed a couple times. The point is, what do you, what's the lesson? Forget it. Yeah, just, just hit the bumpers. Just play to win. That's and, the and, thing. And and I think the blessing that I want to give everybody is Hashem, please give us bumpers. In life, you know, we're not always going straight exactly. And we want to we wanna right, hit those pins. Just let us hit the pins. Just let us hit yeah, the pins. Yeah, just, just help, help us, us with the, the bumpers. Pins. Exactly, that's it. And that's, you know, as as the Rosh Chodesh Elul is tonight. Ah, tonight, tonight, tonight. Yes. Rosh Chodesh Elul. Really, Hashem, like, there's so much gutter. There's so much gutter. And our ball, we don't have great aim oftentimes. Right. But if you'll just and put up a bumper. And we certainly don't need to, to do the spin the spin right. when it spins in the right way. We don't know. If you'll just put up the bumper and let us hit some pins. Right. Just don't make us go in the gutter. Uh, it was a great party, Malka. I want to thank yeah. you. And it was indeed beautiful. Uh, 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 she made beautiful. Uh, Leah made these beautiful cupcakes right. with the, with with the, the pins. pins. Yeah, and the balls. And, yeah. and, you know, I was just wondering what condition my condition is in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> 
if you know if you know what that's yeah. from, you can hashtag it. Yeah. Uh, send it to Ishai in his email. Ishai, give him your yeah. email address. Ishai, Ishai Fleischer.com, Ishai at the land of Israel.com. Forget it, dude. Let's just go bowling. In any case, it was it was awesome. And it was it was very holy in Jerusalem. I hope that you, past this corona, will come to Jerusalem, come to the holy sites, come to Hebron. Uh, check us out at hebronfund.org. Uh, come to the tomb of Rachel, come to the tomb of Joseph. But don't forget to go bowling in Jerusalem. Right. We have a great show lined up. We're going to go right now to uh, Dr. Mordechai Kedar. He's going to give you an incredible rundown. No on, gutter on, balls from him. No. Who the UAE is, what they are, who Muhammad Ben Zayed is. You're going to find that out just in a second. Uh, and really get an understanding about their psychology, what they're aiming for, and what this Abraham Courts is all about. Afterwards... Uh, we're going to go to Rabbi Mike Foyer. We're going to talk about the Torah portion of Mishpatim. Lots and lots of laws about society, about officers, about not defunding the police, about law, uh, and about war. So we're going to really talk about uh, those kind of like officers, even the priests that are that are anointed for war. We're going to talk about all these different uh, aspects. Uh, and that's it. Then we'll get a chance to say goodbye to you, Malka. So thank you All so right. much for joining us. Thank you. And let's go to the one and only Dr. Mordechai Kedar. Chodesh Tov. The Yishai Fleischer Show, the voice of a new generation of pro-Israel activists. Mordechai Kedar, one of my heroes in this world, uh, and he is quite famous in the Middle East uh, research world. Uh, he's a research associate at the BESA, it's the Bacon Sadat Center for Strategic Studies at the Bar-Ilan University, along with many other research centers globally. He's also the director of the Center of the Study of Middle East and Islam under formation at Bar-Ilan. He studies uh, radical Islam and gained fame for appearing on many Arab media outlets, including uh, Al Jazeera. And he has served for 25 years as a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli military intelligence, both in, uh, now he serves in reserves at both Northern and Central Command. And he's a commentator on many Israeli and foreign media. And he's really the person who understands the, uh, the, latest, the latest reality, the change in reality here in the Middle East between Israel and the uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates. And you've all read the headlines uh, and so I'm not bringing him on, not bringing on Dr. Kedar to just talk about the headlines. You know the headlines. The headlines are that Israel has signed some kind of peace accord named the Abraham Accords with the UAE with the stipulation that Israel stops the progress forward uh, of sovereignty in Judea and Samaria in the so-called West Bank. That's the headlines. But what's behind the headlines and who are the personalities? Dr. Kedar, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Yes, it's my pleasure and my honor to be here. Okay, great. First thing, tell me about these personalities. We, we, we heard about MBS, that's Mohammed bin Salman. He's the leader uh, of Saudi Arabia. Now we've got uh, a new guy that I guess a lot of us uh, folks didn't really know much about, and his name is MBZ, Mohammed bin Zaid. Uh, and he's the leader, the de facto leader, I understand, of the United Arab, Arab, Arab Emirates. Maybe you just want to tell us a little bit, what is the United Arab Emirates? Is it a country? Is it a conglomerate of countries? Is it like the United States, where you have a few different states together? And who is this guy at the head of it? Well, first of all, the United Arab Emirates is an entity which was created in the early 70s, like uh, 50 years ago, when Britain withdrew from the Persian Gulf and uh, learned from their bad experience in Iraq 
by creating the conglomerate of tribes and ethnic groups and religious groups and the sectarian groups like named Iraq and this was failing state already they already saw the problem so when they got out from the Gulf 30 years later later they left behind them a group of Emirates means entities which are based on one tribe each and each and everyone of them is based on one single tribe and when you have a consolidated society although small but a, a, a homogeneous society you get a stable society and you get a stable state and a good state and uh, this is what they learned from their bad experience in uh, in Iraq uh, one generation earlier mm-hmm. so uh, they created ten Emirates in the Gulf I mean Kuwait uh, Bahrain Qatar which remained separate until this very day and another seven who later made a federation uh, which is Dubai uh, um, uh, Abu Dhabi Fujairah Ras El Khaimah uh, uh, Ajman and Umkaiwin and uh, Sharka this is the last one uh, all these uh, ten were given the choice whether to to remain separate or to make some kind of a federation and the seven decided to make it a federation while three remained outside this federation looks more like the European Union than the United States of America mm-hmm. you know the states in America are not sovereign New York is no sovereignty neither has a uh, and New Jersey or Florida or Oklahoma or, or Texas while in the European Union France is sovereign Germany is sovereign Holland is sovereign and so forth these uh, seven Emirates uh, which are united in the in the United Arab Emirates are separate sovereign independent from each other yet they made this federation just like the European Union they united the currency they united the army they have one uh, coastal uh, guard they united the foreign policy they have one ministry of uh, foreign affairs they one one embassy in let's say in france and france has one embassy in abu dhabi representing france vis-a-vis all the seven together but they did not uh, create one police for example they don't have a federal bureau of investigation means fbi because they hide secrets from each other from each other they did not unite the economy the economy is separate um, so they, are, they look more more or less like like uh, europe the european union um, yet they uh, when it comes to foreign policy they are very consolidated they get all the decisions by uh, by uh, 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 consultants with each other and when they come to a, a conclusion they do whatever they have to do uh, the emirates are what about ethnically what about ethnic are they are they an ethnic, a they are ethnic group they are arabs they are sunni sunni muslims uh, they are not wahhabis there are uh, different uh, uh, sects uh, however their culture or their background is bedouin like all the other uh, 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 people in the uh, in the uh, arab peninsula uh, maybe not the yemenites but uh, uh, most of the arabs in the 
Arabian Peninsula are from Bedouin background. And this is what makes the big difference. First of all, the tribal ties are very, very important for them. Unlike Arabs who settled in the cities, let's say in Syria or in Lebanon or in other parts of the Arab world, where the family ties are much more loose. Uh, this is one thing. Second thing, uh, being Bedouins or Bedouin background, they are looked upon by the others uh, as, um, I would say, back, uh, backwarded, primitive, uh, those who still remained in the desert or things like this. Uh, while they themselves, the people in the desert, view themselves as real Arabs, while those who dwell in the cities in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, wherever they are, uh, actually lost their Arab characteristics. They became weak, they became, I mean, they are stripped of their Arab background, and they look upon them from above. Uh, peasants are somewhere in between. Uh, the peasants are looked upon by the city dwellers as uh, low life, while the peasants look at the Bedouins as low life. Okay, so this, I would say, the hierarchy of uh, perceptions and stereotypes in the Arab world. The Bedouins well, are the lowest, the peasants are in the middle, while the people who live in the cities view themselves as the elite, while the Bedouins view themselves as the elite, while the others are those who lost their Arab uh, entity or uh, characteristics. And this okay, is what, our, about, what, about, what about economically? Because that probably also well, influences. When, comes, when you look at comes, Dubai, yeah. it's a very, it's a great looking town. It's a great looking area. Uh, they must look down upon people who are poorer than them. What happened is that because they are homogenous societies, because they don't accept anyone because they are Bedouins, they have stable states. And stability brings money. Either you, you have um, oil from like, Dubai, like uh, Abu Dhabi, so you can make money out of oil. If you don't have oil like Dubai, no oil and no gas, you make money out of business because you cooperate with each other because you are from the same tribe. You don't betray anyone. So being homogenous societies, each and every one is based on one tribe, actually made them rich countries. While the conglomerates of ethnic groups, tribes, sectarian and religious groups like Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, Yemen, Sudan, made those countries failing states mm -hmm. because of the multiple groups which never lived in peace with each other. Mm -hmm. So, uh, paradoxically, because they are Bedouins and would not uh, accept anyone else into their country, because they are Bedouins, they became very rich because of this, because of the homogeneity of their societies and the stability of the states and the fact that they have a traditional law which they all follow. Nobody... What, what about... What about Dr. Kedar, what about their relationship to Islam? Are they a little bit less... Uh, edgy, a little bit less given to the extremist perception of Islam because they're Bedouins, at least that's been my experience, uh, that Bedouins are more likely to take Islam as a bit of an easier form and does that, if that's true, does that impact the way they see Israel? Well, one of my Bedouin stu students once said that uh, our Islam is Islam light. 
Light, you know, they are Muslims, so of everything they, you know, they pray, they everything. But the, the teachings of Islam are secondary to the teachings or the traditions of the tribe, which are much more important. For example, blood revenge is one of the most basic tribal uh, uh, traditions. This is totally against Islam. In Islam, you are not allowed to kill anyone only because he killed your brother or your sister or whoever. Uh, you have to bring him to court. You have to bring uh, witnesses. You have to. to you, you need a judge, and only then, after he is being faced with court, only then you can punish him. You cannot just go and kill somebody, especially if he's not the killer, but his cousin, because this is one of the, the rules of the tribe. So, and this is only one uh, one good example. Another good example is, according to the tribal rules, you marry your daughter to to her cousin, to your brother's son. Okay. Uh, in Islam, it's uh, viewed as something uh, not recommended because the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, already said, uh, marry uh, from afar. Means don't, don't uh, make your daughter marry her first cousin because he already knew the damages, you know, mm -hmm. in... in uh, 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 all, all kinds of uh, genetic diseases uh, which are created and preserved by marrying uh, rel relatives for generations. So all right. he recommends uh, warmly that uh, Muslims will marry from afar. Yet you can very easily see, see that in tribal societies they still marry the cousin. So uh, definitely you can you can say that the tribal law is much more powerful, much more significant uh, compared to other kinds of law, especially the Islamic law. So uh, I want to I want to get to now if that Islamic light, as you say, uh, touches how they perceive Israel. But before you answer that question, just a quick question for me: uh, Qatar. How does that fit in there? How do the Qataris? Qatar, aren't they the same folks? Qatar was created uh, more or less the same, but. Uh, in the 80s, especially in the 90s, Qatar went through a radical change uh, because of one person, uh, Sheikh Yusuf Karadawi, an Egyptian the speaker or the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood of those days. He ran away from Mubarak in order to save his head. So he settled in Qatar and he actually convinced the Emir of Qatar to change his mindset from a tribal thinking to a Muslim Brotherhood, which is totally mm. opposite. Mm. And since then, Qatar became the sponsor of the Muslim Brotherhood organizations all over the world. Hamas, for example, uh, Al-Qaeda at the beginning. Uh, I think that they also supported ISIS in the beginning. So, so you really uh, think that Karadawi himself, this one super intellectual, uh, ultra-jihadist thinker, when he moved to Qatar, was able to change the mind of that whole society because of his influence on the king. On the uh, on the emir, yes, he had he had with him many meetings, hmm. and uh, you know it, you don't need much more than to show how bad are the Arab leaders who do not implement the Sharia, who act against the Muslim Brotherhood when you don't have anyone in the room to challenge what he says. So uh, he became the, the, the mentor for Islam mm. for this. And don't, don't forget that he had the, the pulpit of Al Jazeera. 
since 1996, since, since Al Jazeera started to work, uh, he had every week a whole hour to Karadawi. Karadawi, right. Karadawi in Al Jazeera, right. in a program right. named Al Sharia Wal Hayat, means Sharia and life. So, uh, and no wonder that he succeeded to turn Qatar into a jihadi uh, supporting uh, country, uh, thanks to the uh, gas revenues which they have from the gas field which they share with Iran. And mm -hmm. since they share the same uh, uh, gas field with Iran, they are more or less in, in the same bed with, with Iran, with the Ayatollahs. Mm -hmm. Although they are Sunnis. By the way, Qatar is Wahhabi. Uh, just like the Saudis, but the hatred between the Saudis and the Qataris is tremendous. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay. okay, now let's get to the UAE right now. Uh, the UAE, as I understand, has, has this Mohammed bin Zayed, and he is uh, MBZ, as is known now in popular culture. Uh, and and uh, he's a young, he, he, somehow he's the default ruler. He's not like the ruler, as you explained. They have these the, this conglomerate of states like the EU, but somehow he is the the um, the number one guy that represents the interests of the, the UAE. He's the crown prince, just like Muhammad bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. The crown prince of what? Of you told me that of Abu Dhabi, right? Which is the leader uh -huh. of the federation? Okay, okay. So MBZ is a Bedouin. He's the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. He's the leader of the UAE. A federation, um, and he is actually the son of Sheikh Zayed, who today is dysfunctional. He doesn't function. Tell me about about this guy. Tell me about MBZ. Who is he? Okay, what, MBZ, what is his personality? Muhammad ben, ben Zayed. He is actually he. I think is like thirty something years old, and he actually represents the new generation of the Emirates, a generation of youngsters, bo both boys and girls who grew up in a very, very rich society, uh, who has the ability to buy everything. You should see the cars in the streets, Lamborghinis, Bugattis, Ferraris, uh, Maseratis. Mercedes is for the poor guys. <laughs> okay? Okay. Uh, Rolls Royce, you know... You name a car, a, a lucrative car, you 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 find them. Okay. Uh, they buy the the best gadgets, means the most expensive uh, cell phones and whatever there is in the market, uh, because they can. Uh, the the fashion which they buy is the top of the top. I get it. Uh, the top of the top of the fashion, you know, fashion products. And they buy it from the uh, most expensive uh, uh, shops and designers uh, in Europe. Uh, even the women are buying the best uh, uh, makeup uh, products, most expensive makeup products. I get uh, it. They're super rich. All right. Super rich. Uh, uh, jewelry. You know, there is a, 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 a market of jewelry in Dubai. You know, there are shirts. Made of gold, shirts made of gold, you know, things which are mind-boggling. And okay. the most expensive, lingerie. Lingerie, okay. <laughs> designs, I get it, I get it. Designs which you cannot get anywhere in the world. All right. 
so, so they're very rich. So MBZ is growing rich. up in this. Okay. And uh, uh, they are they are today means the, the citizens of the Emirates today are a very small minority of the people who live in the Emirates because the majority are foreign workers. First of all, the citizens do not work. All they do is managing their business. Um, they, maybe some lawyers, some uh, accountants, but um, all they do is managing the business which they are partners, silent part partners of businesses. Um, they do not uh, work in construction. They have uh, uh, people from Bangladesh who work in construction. If they survive after two years of working in the heat, they go home with some money. Uh, they don't work in garages because in garages they have the Pakistanis. And, um, you know, every family with, let's say, two or three kids need uh, between 10 and 20 workers. One in the garden, one uh, maintains the cars, one cook, one bakes, uh, one uh, make tidy the, the home, and uh, one takes care of the kids. You know, they have so many servants, and uh, this is the only at home. Uh, imagine they need also for construction and uh, running the towns and running the sewage and running everything which works there. They don't take part in these things. They have foreign workers. Even the police are foreign workers, usually from India. Okay, so this this is the the society in the in in the, in the Emirates, and uh, you know uh, Qatar now was building uh, many stadiums for the 2020. Uh, soccer, uh, you know, uh, the Mundial, uh, the soccer games. Uh, there they, they were very, very bad reports of uh, human rights violations, how they treat the foreign workers. People were just dying like, like, uh, like flies uh, because of uh, how they had to work uh, in the hot days of, you know. Now, it, now I remind it, you, I remind you, my original yeah, question is, the, My question the, to you is, who, degrees. who is MBZ though? Who is MBZ within that? MBZ uh, is actually, he, he represents the young generation who uh, are more or less free from the tribal thinking, more or less, because I'm, I'm sure that his sister will be married to one of her relatives. Uh, he won't let her marry somebody from uh, Pakistan, for example, even if he's a good, good Muslim, because he's, how they say in Arabic, nicht unsere. Not, not, not from ours. Okay. Uh, in Yiddish, but All right. Same, they say in Arabic. Um, so uh, they want to invest their money in uh, high tech. They want to invest their money in uh, research. They want to be associated with progress of the world. Uh, they have very nice universities teaching in English because they buy the best uh, lecturers and researchers from the best universities in the world. Um, um, must, many of the, uh, you know, they have newspapers in English, not even in Arabic. They have all some. Right. So, so MBZ is growing up in all this, and he is, as you were describing, very wealthy, looking towards progress, look, looking towards high tech, looking towards investment. So within yeah, that complex of thinking, what is Israel to them? Oh. It's an ancient enemy comes, of the Arabs, and, isn't and it? Comes, and here comes the, I would say, the history of the 30 last years uh, in the Arab world. The Arab world was led by radical countries 
uh, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like Egypt uh, under uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who, who was connected with the Soviets, uh, like Hafez Assad, like Saddam Hussein, like Muammar Gaddafi, who were all uh, um, subordinates of the Soviet Union because they thought that socialism and Ba'ath, which is the same, uh, are the new game in the world. And, and the, this is, uh, and they were radicals. They were, they wanted to unite the Arab world. You know, Gamal Abdel Nasser wanted to unite the Arab world, one, one entity, and he united the, with Syria for three, for three years, wanted to do it with other countries. And this was the radical uh, part of the Arab world. And they actually gave the lead of the Arab League uh, by the radicalism. The traditional countries like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, Oman, they felt that they are under a constant attack by the radicals because they were viewed as counter-revolutionary counter right. countries because they are still sticking to the old traditions of the kingdom and the tribe and the Emirates and all these things and they still wear the traditional kufiya and the robe instead of wearing a, a, a necktie and, and the suit, you know, or instead of fighting against Israel, they don't. And Israel, of course, was the main challenge of the Arab nation nationhood. And, and the Arab League was totally against Israel and so forth. And Israel actually was the unifying element for the Arab, or what as they posed it. Yet, Saudi Arabia felt always at, uh, under attack. This is why Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were always connected to Britain, to Britain and to the United States of America to save them from the Soviet Union uh, allies in the Middle East, like Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Libya. Okay, so already then they felt under attack. Now what happens, in the last uh, recent, uh, let's say, decade, that Syria is a bloodbath by itself, Iraq is dysfunctional, uh, Libya is uh, another swamp of problems, Egypt is sinking in its own problems with the Nile and with, uh, with the unemployment and the rapid uh, growth of population, which they have to feed. And actually the dream of Arab, the league doesn't, doesn't work anymore. The Arab nationhood or Arab nationalism is a failure. Nobody really believes in it anymore. Israel is not the enemy, especially not with Egypt, because Egypt has a, a peace agreement with Israel already for 41 years. Jordan went off the, the countries we were against Israel. Even the Palestinians made peace with Israel in the Oslo agreements. So, uh, and the other, and the rest of the countries are dysfunctional. So now Saudi Arabia and the traditional states feel much more liberated to do what it is according to their uh, uh, interests. And their interests is to live in peace, to, uh, to develop the countries, to prepare to the day after the oil, because Saudi Arabia knows that their oil, uh, his years are numbered. And uh, they have to prepare to the next phase of life because they want to survive after the oil as well. So they have to, to start developing the country, to start adopting new ways of, of uh, making living. Uh, and they have to stick to powers in the world who lead the progress, of real progress of the world, not the progress of, of the Soviet Union. 
and here is the Israel. Now, to this you can add the Iranian issue, which frightens them totally. They wouldn't say, they wouldn't uh, uh, talk about this because a Bedouin is not uh, uh, supposed to show his emotions. And if you cry and shout like the, like the, the, the Israelis about Iran, uh, you are like a woman who exposes her emotions all the time. This is uh, how they think. This is why they keep poker face. Uh, even vis-a-vis even even vis-a-vis the the Iranian issue we are Jews we are different culture we shout and scream from wherever we can even in the Congress wherever we can go and we are proud of it they are not they keep uh, silent the storm is inside them okay this is the culture but they are much more afraid from from Iran than Israel because first of all they are closer to Iran we have a buffer zone like Iraq and Jordan between us uh, and Iran. They you're saying they're more, wait, just one second, you, you cut out for a second. So you're saying they're more afraid of Iran than Israel's afraid of Iran. To them, it's a much more, much more uh, immediate much danger. Because first of all, they are closer to Iran. They don't have a buffer zone like Iraq and Jordan, which we have with Iran. They have only the Gulf, which is a few dozens of kilometers, nothing. First, right. first, second thing, they are much more vulnerable. Our treasures of oil and gas are under, under the sea. It's very hard to, to touch it and to hurt it and to attack it. In the Gulf, all the oil industry is on the ground, is exposed. It's enough if you blow up one pipe that in order to create a whole disaster in the whole area. And the refineries are right under the noses of the, of the Iranians. They are much more vulnerable. And the Saudis are much more attractive than us because Saudi Arabia is Mecca and Medina. And right. Iran- I just want to make that I want to make that point clear. When, when an Iranian mullah wakes up in the morning, he feels it's a great shame that the, that the Sunnis are in charge of these two holy sites, Mecca and Medina. And for him, Definitely. he, 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 he needs to liberate it. He right. wants to restore the caliphate of Ali ben Abi Talib, the fourth caliph, who founded the Shia, and uh, his descendants who go all, all the way down to the mullahs of Iran until this very day. Okay, so Dr. Kedar, now I want to ask you another question. Are we going towards a warm relationship with the UAE or a cold one the way we've had with Egypt and with Jordan? That touring there is not so comfortable. They, you know, take away your tefillin, your your Jewish stuff, and it's not. And they teach Semitism in Egypt very much, and and so you know a lot of anti-Israelism in Jordan. Is this going to be a different kind of a warmer relationship with the UAE? Are we going to really fly there and feel good walking around the mall there? Are they going to fly here and feel good walking around Jerusalem and Tel Aviv? Well, uh, uh, already in the announcement of last Thursday of uh, Trump and Netanyahu and Muhammad Ben Zayed, Ben Ben Zayed, Muhammad Ben Zayed, uh, already they talked about normalization. Normalization in Arabic is tatbir. Tatbir in Arabic is a bad word because so far peace with Israel is no, could be acceptable in some, but tatbir means hugs and kisses with the Israelis. This is way beyond what the Arab nationalism allowed. Uh, the, uh, the 
the worst word or term which the Palestinian can can use against somebody in the Arab world is mutabbeh, means somebody who normalizes his relations with Israel. This is the worst epithet which they can uh, give to anyone. And here comes Muhammad ben Zayed and declares, yes, we are going to have normalization with Israel. From the beginning, this is something which even the Egyptians have not yet given to Israel, neither the Jordanians. And why is this? Apparently, this is what Netanyahu demanded according to an article which I wrote and published uh, a couple of years ago under the title, The Ten Commandments of Peace with Saudi Arabia. And there I said uh, in, uh, explicitly that what we should demand is tatbiyah, uh, and not tatbiya. only peace. Tatbiyah mm -hmm. means uh, normalization. Normalization, it's like, yeah. Yeah, this one thing. Second thing, don't forget that the Arab Emirates, they have nothing against Israel. They actually share much with Israel. The fear from the Arab radicalism of Gamal Abdel Nasser and all the others. They were a, a, in, a, in a defense position for many years inside the Arab League because of these radical leaders who were led by the Soviets. And we were as, we were as well uh, uh, attacked by those countries. So we share the same thing. And now we are liberated from the threat of Syria, Egypt, of course, and Iraq as well, because these countries are dysfunctional. And they are also liberated mm -hmm. from the, these, uh, these countries as well. So, so, okay, so, so again, I ask you, this, this is the your language of Tadabiya, okay, great, the language of normalization. But is that in fact what's going to happen in your perception? Do you think that we're really... Now, another difference that you haven't spoken of yet is that already a lot of Jewish uh, uh, involvement in the UAE. I have uh, friends who are businessmen in places like Brooklyn, Arabic-speaking businessmen who travel to these places, to the UAE, and feel, and they told me, this is a completely different Arab country. We feel great there. And there's already been that culture... Has already created. Is it also going to be that Israelis are going to go to that big mall in Dubai and, and do the, the skiing Israelis, inside the mall there? Israelis, first of all, they go to there anyway. You know, there were some international conferences and the games, sports, you know, things, and they accepted right. the Israelis, even the Israeli flag there and the Israeli yes. national anthem. So it, it happens already. Don't forget that Israelis can go to Morocco as well, which is another Arab country, right. That's right. Uh, for tourism. Once it was only Jews who were born in, uh, in, in Morocco, but now everyone can go to Morocco with Israeli passport and uh, be very well uh, welcome uh, in Morocco. And, uh, you know, Israelis do not feel any, any bad feelings there in that place. So uh, when, when countries do not have any problem with Israel, um, apparently the, the population uh, accepts Israelis, especially if, if Israelis give them business. Right. And it's very important, especially in countries like Morocco or Egypt, where uh, business are very much needed by the population. And here as well, uh, the Emirates want to benefit from the Israeli high-tech, from the Israeli developments. Israel, Israeli, uh, I would say, thinking from out of the box, uh, which made Israel 
uh, startup nation. And uh, they know about Israel because they know that in every cell phone which they use, there are at least 30 Israeli patents embedded in, in every cell phone. So uh, they know it and they know, and they know another, another thing. And here comes the, the timing. Uh, since they are very much afraid from Iran, they want overwhelmingly, they want Trump to be reelected because of the sanctions on Iran, because he left the uh, JCPOA, the nuclear agreement of 2015, because Trump deals with the Iranians the way which the Emiratis and the Saudis uh, definitely want him to do. They want him to be reelected. Now, they already heard that most of the Jews do not vote for Trump for various reasons. And they want to convince the Jews to vote for Trump. And this explains what happened th last Thursday. They know that if they now get into negotiations with Israel about the peace agreement, because there is no agreement yet, it's only declaration. And I believe that the end of the negotiations will be like in two months. So it will be in October. And the signing of the peace agreement will be on the loan of the White House uh, between one week or two weeks uh, before the elections. Mm -hmm. Now imagine President Trump stands in, in, in front of all the cameras. On one side, Netanyahu. On the other side, Mohammed Ben Zayed. Shaking hands with the three of them, six hands together. Just like what happened with uh, President Carter and uh, Sadat and Begin in 1979, and what happened with President Clinton with Arafat and Rabin in 1993. Trump wants to reproduce the same picture in order to come to the elections when all the Jews in the United States are very happy that he brought the peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And Yeshai, let me tell you something. I will be the last one on earth to be surprised if there will be more parties in this handshake. Uh, Oman, Bahrain, and maybe the diamond Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Imagine Trump stands with Netanyahu, Muhammad bin Zayed, Muhammad bin Salman, and the Bahraini king, and the Sultan of, of, of uh, Oman, and Netanyahu, of course, all together shaking hands, six leaders of the Middle East shaking hands with Trump. What will it do to the Jewish vote week later? And this is, in my humble view, the main motivation of the United Arab Emirates to give Israel not only peace, but normalization. Because this is what Netanyahu demanded. Apparently, it was a condition. And they also he gave them also the fig leaf to cover oh. the shame of, Wait. of uh, so, waiting with the annexation. Right. So, so I'm... Before you get into that, Dr. Kedar, so so I want to I want to start uh, wrapping up the interview, but we can't skip one issue, which is the elephant in the room, 
which is so-called Palestine, and the Jewish sovereignty in the same area that there would be a Palestine, which is the ancestral Jewish homeland of Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank. And supposedly, uh, part of this agreement is a freeze, a moratorium, uh, or a secession of the assertion of sovereignty in Bible Netanyahu, which he promised in three different elections, uh, in Judea and Samaria of the Jewish communities, the 500,000 Jews that live in these places. And that's supposedly part of the agreement. And that's been uh, nationalist leaders, right-wing leaders here in Israel have spoken out against that, and there's been some, some backlash. Um, and here's the, here's the real question. Is, is the UAE's demands that Israel stop annexation, is it lip service towards a Palestine so that they could get the Arab street to accept this normalization with Israel, saying, look, we stopped them from annexing so-called Palestinian land? Or is it really something that's deeply important to them that Israel does not accept these parts and that we go towards a two-state solution and indeed see a Palestine emerge on this land? Which, which one is it? Look, they know that there is a limit to what they can do. If they come and say, hey, because of this peace, which the Palestinians, Palestinians of course, they objected overwhelmingly, both Fatah and Hamas. Uh, if we can come and say, hey, because of this peace, Israel... Uh, does not, for time being, does not uh, claims sovereignty over parts of Judea and Samaria. This is something which might might give them some uh, cover or fig leaf to cover what they do. Of course, the Palestinians do not buy it because the Palestinians already know that there are big differences here in Israel vis-a-vis -vis this question. Uh, Gantz doesn't like it. Ashkenazi doesn't like it. Never mind the others. And even in the American uh, administration, there is no uh, consensus about uh, Israel, if Israel should uh, 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 annex or, or spread its sovereignty over parts of the Judean Samaria or not. Um, so they went into this crack inside the Israeli political system. And they say, okay, we are, uh, our achievement is to uh, postpone this thing and this Yes, it is a fig leaf, but still they believe that this might work forever. Now they, it all depends on the small print of the agreement. On the agreement. And, and, and now here I must warn everybody. As good as it looks like, we should always bear in mind that we already, Israel already had uh, some kind of agreements with Qatar and Tunisia as well. These agreements were during the 90s uh, to open Israeli commercial offices in these countries with Israeli flag. It's not an embassy, it's not a, it's not a, a, a consulate, it is a commercial uh, representation. The lowest representation which could be. But it was still uh, uh, official and people from the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs were working in these institutions. These agreements were cancelled by Tunisia and Qatar after the eruption of the Second Intifada late 2000. Mm -hmm. Means an agreement can be cancelled, can be breached. Even the peace which we might sign with the Emirates today or in, in these weeks can be cancelled by them because of various reasons. It could be an Iranian demand, it could be something else.
So we should not pay with hard currency for a paper which the world peace tops it. We should be very, very careful not to pay with land or with all kinds of commitments regarding land, like not uh, having the sovereignty, Israel sovereignty over the West Bank because of this peace agreement. It has to be checked. It has to be under control. Nothing should be free. And Israel should be always uh, on the guard because of this thing. It's still not sure that this thing will last forever. Meaning, in other words, negotiate like it's the Middle East and don't uh, get overexcited about the peace that is breaking out, but rather keep a hard-nosed, Make sure not to give away your, your homeland for peace with a country that was never at war with us uh, and assert our demand for normalization. What was the word? Tabia? What was the word? Tatbia. Tatbia. That's Tatbia. right. We have to demand Tatbia. it. Here's another, another very important point. We Israelis tend to celebrate every little thing to make a whole fuss out of it. Um, historic um event historic uh, agreement historic declarations new middle east new horizon you know the new sun you know all, all these expressions which israelis politicians and uh, journalists as well and we do not understand means israelis do not understand that the more heroic you, you turn the event the more you have to pay for it right right i should keep very low profile about this very good not for our emotions even if we want to be happy be happy but inside you very don't good. show because like you know in every transaction if you want if you show in the market that you want some some kind of merchandise you have it's to gonna pay cost more. you that's right you, it's gonna cost you you raise the price while if you say hey i don't need it I live for 72 years without you. We don't, we don't really need you. What do you pay us for this? Okay, this is a different approach. However, Israelis are so obsessive to be loved by others, so they don't control themselves. When there, when and, are, and immediately come the question, did he smile to us? Did he shake Netanyahu's hand? Did he, how long was the handshaking? You know, as if you want to, to see how, how fast his heart beats. So, <laughs> you know, get crazy when they see any kind of, uh, any, uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, emotion. And, and we should stop doing it because we behave like, you know, emotional people who can be very easily blackmailed. And this is unfortunately what happens with us for many years since we began to, to, to speak to Arabs. Very good. We should always keep poker face and say constantly, guys, we don't need the peace with you. We are a right. flourishing country. We are a vibrant society. We are a full democracy. We know even how to judge our presidents and prime ministers. And we know how to put them in jail if needed as well. And we don't, and we are part of the OECD. And we are a developed country. And we are a stable country. And we won, we won all the wars against you. 
So we don't really need the peace with you. What do you give us for peace? And this this was this should have been the approach to peace in the Middle East between us and the Middle East. Dr. Kedar, Dr. There's there's somebody wrote here in Arabic. I just put it up on the screen. Will the Israeli uh, worker have an opportunity to work in the Emirates? It all depends on the agreements. The same thing, will people from the Emirates could work in Israel? Look, I think, or I'm sure, that businesses will will be able to cooperate. Already, there are investments from the from the from the Gulf Emirates here in Israel. It was published that a, a company from the from the Gulf uh, invests in research and development of medications and the vaccine against the corona. So you, you have it already before the agreement was even signed. So here we are. Another one. We Moroccan always love our Jewish. We miss those who left Morocco and wish they stayed. Uh, sir, Jimmy Merlino, the, the same thing I, I hear from Iraqis, not Jewish, Iraqis who regret for the fact that they mis, mistreated the Jewish community in, in Iraq. So the Jewish community ran away in the 50s. The same thing I hear from Syrians who regret for their attitude to the Jews and they pray for the day that they uh, will have the Jews again in, in Syria. And so it is in Tunisia and in Libya as well. Yes, the, the situation today in the Arab world is so dire that they are praying for the days that Jews were there when the, the attitude to minorities which was much better. Okay, Dr. Kedar, our last two comments that I'm putting up from uh, from Facebook and from Twitter uh, and from YouTube. Here's another comment. Wait, this Dr. one. That's not what I meant. Here, here's the one. Here's the one. Uh, he says, and you can read it. So we could learn from the Arabs, keep our emotions inside. Hide your cards. I couldn't put it in a better way. Definitely. If you show your cards, you lose the game. Mm-hmm. And here's one more, uh, which, uh, go ahead, you can read that. For your expertise, thank you for listening, Mr. Rodriguez. That's right, Dr. Mordechai Kedar, there are tens and tens, maybe 60, 70 comments uh, here, really thanking you for your analysis. Dr. Mordechai Kedar is a research associate at the Bessel Center for Strategic Studies at Bar-Ilan, along with many other research facilities worldwide, globally. Uh, he's also the director of the Center for the Study of the Middle East and Islam under formation at Bar-Ilan. Uh, he studies and teaches radical Islam and gained fame for appearing on many Arab uh, outlets in Arabic, uh, not in English, this outlet, including Al Jazeera, very famously. Check it out on YouTube. And he has served for 25 years as lieutenant colonel in the Israeli military intelligence and continues to serve in northern and central command as a commentator on Israeli and foreign media. And I want to thank you very much, Dr. Kedar, for being with us here today on the Ishai Fleischer Show and for a very useful uh, and informative uh, interview that helps us understand uh, these uh, moves forward and not only understand them, but also you've given us uh, uh, important advice at how to approach uh, so-called peacemaking in the Middle East. Yeah, and, and the main point, learn to speak Arabic. It is learn very to speak Arabic. To speak to the locals in their language 
because you speak like in English, it's like the British occupation or British colonialism. They don't right. like it. Right. Speak them in Arabic. Oh, so oh and, and, exactly and with that, and with that, Dr. Kedar, I actually want to finish off with, thank God you just reminded me with the last question here. Um, and I want to keep this discussion under an hour, so we just have a few minutes left. Um, the, the name of the, treat, of the uh, upcoming treaty with the UAE has been called the Abraham Accords. Now, for us, for Israelis, this term, I think, is a big win because one of the efforts to undermine Israel has been to paint it as a white European colonialist. Now, the minute that you use the term Abraham Accords, you are reminding people, we, the Jews and the Arabs, are the children of Abraham. And you're putting us on an even plane that we are a Semitic people, we are a regional people, a tribal peoples, all of us here, and that we have this kind of relationship. So for me, where I work in Hebron, uh, at the Jewish community of Hebron, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs there, Abraham is buried there, and Arabs and Jews both understand that this is our forefather, this is the, the Abraham that, that kind of brings us all together. Is this term a term that's real in the Arab minds uh, around the region? Can they accept that we too are the children of Abraham? Uh, even the Iranian, uh, uh, Iranian uh, Khomeini, Khomeini, right? What's his name? Is he a mullah? What is he? Is he? Uh, I forgot the, the, the proper title for him. The Ayatollah. the Ayatollah. That's right. The Ayatollah. I'm sorry. The Ayatollah Khomeini recently wrote that one of our enemies is the, the children of the these children in the Quran, the children of Israel, Bani Israel. And he, he basically legitimized the idea that we are the original uh, Jewish people, the children of Abraham. And I wanted to ask you, is this a useful terminology when we use the term Abraham Accords? Or is this just for the Western ears? a useful one, you know, for the Christian evangelicals thinking we're the children of Abraham. Who really benefits from this term? Well, definitely, if if you say that you are just like them, the descendants of Abraham, you actually declare that you are Ibn al-Balad, means the son of this place, the son of the country, means they are not the only ones, we are also. Mm. However, uh, those who oppose us keep saying that we Jews of today are not real Jews because we are the descendants of the Khazars or the Khuzars who converted to Judaism. They are Europeans. That's why we don't look like them. We look like more like Europeans, especially those who look like Europeans. So that depends who you are. If you accept these, the Jewish uh, people here in this country, you will agree that they are the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, they have also place here. While if you don't want them here, you will declare that they are not the descendants of, of Abraham. They are fake Jews uh, who converted to Judaism at, in the 16th century. And, uh, and, and the original Jews actually dispersed and nobody knows where they are today. Very good. So we should use this terminology in your mind? We should keep pushing this, this term, Abraham Accords? Of course. This is a good accord. It's a good name. And uh, actually gives Israel and us Jews the legitimacy to be accepted here as Abna al-Balad, sons of the country. Very good. I, I like that very much. Okay, Dr. Mordechai Kedar, I want to thank you. I know that you have other work to do today. Uh, Rafi writes, we are blessed to have someone like Dr. Kedar. Indeed, we are. Thank you so much for joining us thank on the Ishai Fleischer Show.
and thank you for helping us understand our beautiful and amazing Middle East. May the uh, children of eight, with, with a poker face and without too much emotionalism, may we indeed see the day that the children of, of Abraham uh, can come together under the Abraham Accords. Thank you again, Dr. Kedar. Thank you so much, Ishai. All right, folks, that was a lot of fun to have Dr. Kedar with us. Uh, what an awesome, awesome uh, person he is. What an awesome and knowledgeable person he is. I want to thank you so much for joining me on both Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and on the Land of Israel Network and on my podcast, The Ishai Fleischer Show. Please support The Ishai Fleischer Show and help me get great people on like Dr. Kedar. And I see a lot of people asking for Dr. Kedar to come uh, on the show again, and we certainly will do that. So help me keep broadcasting by going to ishaifleischer.com forward slash donate, and also by going to ishaifleischer.com and signing up for the weekly email, which has a ton of excellent information. And I also, since we talk about the Abraham Accords, I want to recommend that you go visit Hebron by going to hebronfund.org. This is the place where Abraham is buried. This is where actually Isaac and Ishmael, uh, the father of the Jews and the father of the Arabs, together buried our joint father, Abraham. And we at the Hebron Jewish community and our aid through uh, hebronfund.org make this uh, tough place to live a continued reality until such a time as we will indeed have uh, Abraham Accords. I want to thank you so much for all of your fabulous comments, which have really added to this program. And I hope that you will share this program with others by sending a share link to everybody who needs to know more about the story of the Middle East. And also write me an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com, letting me know what you like, what you don't like. Just want to thank you very much for being with me. Lots of love and lots of blessings from Israel, the land of blessings. Shalom, shalom. All right, folks, uh, that was Dr. Mordechai Kedar. What an honor and a pleasure to listen to him. And I got so much feedback from this segment. I'd like to hear from you as well. Write me an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com or yishai at thelandofisrael.com about your understandings about the uh, Abraham Accords, uh, the UAE, Israel in, in the region uh, as a Semitic alliance, uh, how do we move forward, and how you're thinking about the American elections, if that's part of your thinking as well, uh, about how that's going to influence uh, Israel in the future, and of course, God's blessings through all of that. Speaking of God's blessings, we are very blessed to have with us uh, an incredible teacher, Rabbi Mike Foyer, Rav Mike, uh, and he joins me, he joined me actually uh, on Facebook Live, and I'm bringing it to you for the Torah portion of Mishpatim. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and we are live here on uh, Facebook, Twitter. What's it called, that Twitter thing? Uh, 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 Periscope, that's right, and YouTube all at once. And you are definitely invited to join us right now. And we are also on the Land of Israel Network uh, as the Yishai Fleischer Show podcast. And today we have with us our beloved Rabbi Mike Foyer, star of, uh, of, of Torah Teaching Stage and Screen. Shalom, Rabbi oh, Mike. Welcome to the show. Shalom, Yishai. I feel like I just got a promotion or something. It, it, well, I don't know about promotion. Star but of we, stage and screen. I mean. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why why you get a promotion this week, and that is because uh, I didn't get a chance to be with you last week. Both you and I were on separate beaches uh, in the land of same, Israel, same state of Israel, different sand. 
same coast, different sand, right? And uh, but you were more in the towards the north. You were in a famous beach that was once even, I think, Phoenician. Yes, uh, that's right. You were on a Phoenician beach, uh, <laughs> and famous for its true blue tchelik uh, creation. Is that right? That is absolutely true. Chovdol. So it's That's a beautiful, right. beautiful spot. Okay. And I was in Ashkelon uh, in a more uh, Egyptian, Gazan, uh, Philistine. Philistine. <laughs> it's, it's a very famous Philistine city, Ashkelon was. Uh, and, of course, Samson also went down there. And in, uh, in uh, I mean, I don't want to make him look bad, but uh, he killed 30 uh, Philistines there uh, in order to uh, win back the bet that he had with the other 30 uh, Philistines about uh, about his riddle, this famous riddle, the Samsonite riddle uh, of what is uh, uh, from food from from the eater comes out food, uh, and from um, bitter comes the sweet. Right? Is it bitter or more intense? Comes out something sweet, right? right. Uh, and that, of course, is the uh, the famous parable, not parable, the famous riddle of um, the torn lion cub which a, a hive of bees set up shop there and set inside and, and, and uh, made honey. So that was in Ashkelon. So we were both in really ancient places. Tell me something. Uh, do you get the feeling when, when you, like, like me, do you get the feeling when you're swimming in a beach like that, do you hear the past, especially in, in light of the fact that you are a, a historian and, and uh, are the head of the Jewish Story podcast here on the Land of Israel Network, jewishstory.co.co. Uh, do you like also like feel like you're swimming with those Phoenicians or swimming with those Jews that made uh, the the blue dye there? Do you like get that feeling? That's funny you say that because I was trying to really impress upon my kids how that what we were doing by vacationing, and it's really a, a huge huge uh, blessing to be able to take a little bit of a break together with the kids. Um, it was fulfilling the dreams of so many of the people that had been standing on that very spot, you know, a couple thousand years ago. That, that like try to connect to like imagine if they could see us now, as we look at the ruins of where they lived, and we're like playing in the tidal pools and seeing little crabs and fishes and whatnot. So yeah, it comes up. Uh, in 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 Chovdor, they have found pits uh, of the boiling of the snails uh, that that were used the the murex trunculi. Did I say that right? Uh, the murex shell. In any case. Uh, that makes this tchelet uh, uh, blue string on the tzitzit. They, they, they've even found the physical lining of those pits with the dye in it. Yes, it was one uh, of the major points of argument for arguing that this is indeed the, the true tchelet and not a different type of dye. Mm -hmm. And if anybody is interested in getting some of that dye today, please visit tchelet.com. Uh, and put in coupon code Yishai, and you'll get, I think, 5% off, but I'm more negotiating for more for you out there so you can get your trailer. They, they, uh, I don't think they still do it. They used to also do tours of Chovdor where you could snorkel and find the Murex sea snails. Oh, yeah. and it's like a, a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And we'll be, we'll be certainly doing that again uh, when, uh, when this period of corona is over. Right now, uh, nobody's coming in or out of the country except a beautiful group of about 10,000 young people who are being let in on condition that they go to a two-week motel uh, quarantine. And that is the motel, except we defined spot. Right, defined spot. But, you know, a lot of a lot of choosing to, to go to a motel. 
And this is the effort to bring in the gap year students, whether they be yeshiva or university, the folks that are coming in for the year. And I got to tell you something. I am so emotionally moved by this story because the state of Israel said, well, we got to keep people, the disease out, we got to keep people out. But these people, this is their one chance in life <clears throat> to come and spend a year in Israel. And we're not going to stop them. We're, we're going to help them make it happen. And these are not just tourists. Uh, they are here for the year. <clears throat> and, and they made every government effort to make that happen. And the door has opened up and they are coming in right now. And I saw a picture uh, of Rabbi Waxman <clears throat> from Shalabim welcoming uh, uh, his students for the year. And I just thought to myself, this was, this was an effort to open up and to make sure that the next generation is going to be touched by Israel and not going to miss their year uh, to, to connect to the life of Israel. I mean, I'm personally grateful because I'm a, I'm a faculty part of this, a faculty of part of this institute, as you know. And we were on pins and needles to know would our institution actually survive? I mean, were, was it going to be a year, a loss? You know, and, and, and an educational institution that closes for a year rarely reopens ever again. Um, and lo and behold, we actually have more full-time students this year than we had last year. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a testimony to both the recruitment and also to the fundraising, to making it happen. It's a fantastic effort. So you're going back to Pardes uh, starting very soon. To yeah, teach it's gonna be yeah, it's going to be complex. I mean, the, the masks and the separation and the indoor, outdoor, Zooming, but we're doing it. We're right, doing it. We're right. making it work. Uh, speaking of Zooming, I called today the internet company, the uh, internet provider that I have in my house, which is called HOT, spelled Hot. Right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I resent, you know, there's a lot of signs in Israel in English, so I a little bit resent that. So I call it Hot, H-O-T. Uh, uh, By the way, oh, speaking of, of, of English and Hebrew signs, yesterday I went bowling. Oh, bowling. No. Yeah, bowling. I saw your tweet with it. When the, when, the, with, when the going gets tough, the tough go bowling. That's right. That's right. And I was bowling in Jerusalem yesterday with... Uh, an immense amount of ultra-Orthodox Jews all wearing face mask and all just having the time of their life. Shit. And I want to tell you something. Uh, they were bowling and women and men, and there's a glad kosher, uh, well, Mahadran, excuse me, Mahadran kosher is more correct, pizzeria there, and right. and uh, and air hockey, what it, you know, and video games. And it was for my son's ninth birthday, and we had a great time there yesterday. And it was cool, just fun to... That's right. And I just want to explain to people that if you come to Israel and you ask anybody about bowling, they won't know what you're talking about. They know bowling, bowling. Which is an awkward mispronunciation. Very, yeah, and it reminds too much of the word bowel. Uh, but, you know, but for most people here in Israel, that's not a problem. So I went bowling yesterday uh, in, in your shalim. And, and uh, you know, it was just, how could I say, Be a beautiful, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful feeling. Now, uh, in order to, to keep... Jerusalem safe. We've got uh, police, border patrol, and other kinds of security uh, apparatuses. In fact, uh, just yesterday, we had an attack uh, in the old city, uh, uh, an effort to stab uh, a border patrol police officer, uh, and the, uh, the culprit was shot, I think was killed, um, or maybe in critical condition, I don't, I don't remember. But the, the bottom, and I, I don't mean to make light of it in any way, uh, but the bottom line is that we have we have we have police, and after such a person is apprehended or or shot, 
uh, we also have a, a, a system of law. Uh, and in the old city of Jerusalem, especially, this law is found in the gates, in the gates of the old city. The reason I say this is because our Torah portion, which is in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Dvarim, uh, and is the uh, starts chapter 16, verse 18, uh, talks about a very famous phrase, shoftim v'shotrim, judges and officers, police officers, if you will, that's a modern translation, I guess, you should put for yourself in all of your gates. These gates are not just your gates. They're the gates that God has given you. Very interesting phrase. It didn't have to kind of say that, that God has given you these gates. It's a, it's a blessing to have these gates, literally a blessing, a blessing of God. For your for your uh, tribes, that he has given you these lands, and these judges and officers have to judge the nation a judgment of justice. Sounds good. Sounds really good. First thing is the the question of of why does it say in all of your gates, not in all of your dwellings, not in all of your cities, but all of your gates. Now the technical answer is that judgment was done in the gates in the old world. And we have even found in many ancient gates, uh, benches, benches that line, line the gates. And basically, and we even have stories like in the book of Ruth, that uh, as people come into the gate, they're, they're told to sit down, to, be, to, be, to, to, to see the judgment, to witness the judgment. The judges would sit there. This was, this was an intersection, if you will. Um, uh, but, but Hasidic... The Hasidic thought adds another level, which is so fabulous. It says you got to put you got to put police officers and judges at your gates. Your gates are the gates to the you, and those gates are your eyes, your ears, your mouth. Yep. You got to guard what comes in. And what you got to guard what comes out. You got to guard what you hear, and you got to guard what you say, and certainly guard what you look at, and also probably guard what you show. And so. Um, and so that is the the added value. What do you think about the guards and judges at the city, at the gates? So, excuse me, at the gates. I mean, as you're describing, this is the essence of civilization, and I don't think it should be taken lightly. This whole parsha actually gives, uh, at least in a cursory sense, an examination of all the models of leadership that the Torah really considers. Shoftim v'shotrim, like you said, judges and and the officers. We're going to get. The priests, the kohanim, we'll talk about the, the navi, the prophet. We're going to, of course, talk about the king, right? So there, there's a, there's a, in this parsha laying out of what we call civilization, because the base level definition of civilization, at least in my eyes, is the idea that there is a structure within which everyone functions, which at least strives to, to treat people on the basis of law and not simply sort of uh, naked power and, and personal interest. Now, of course, there's no perfect system, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go into that. And in fact, what's really kind of, there's a very subtle um, distinction in this passage is that we've already seen a command for Shoftim. In fact, judges, we've been seeing commands that there should be judges since Yitro, since the Torah was given to Moshe at Sinai. The Chiddush, the innovation here is the Shoftim, is the police. One of the ways to understand this is that all of Devarim, you know, Deuteronomy, the Mishnah Torah, the repetition, is a preparation now that you've been living in the desert for 40 years, you've been learning Torah, it's been great, 
you're about to meet reality in the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and reality is, of course, in a perfect world, there would only be judges and there wouldn't be police. You know, today in America, everybody's, you know, not everybody, but there's a certain se section of America saying defund the police. Why? Because they see the police as part of the problem. There shouldn't be a need for enforcement. Like, okay, I'm not going to get into their discourse. But what the reality is, is that police are a recognition of the imperfect nature of both justice and human behavior. You need somebody to back things up because not everybody does things because they're right. A lot of people do things because they're afraid, right? Or because they feel threatened. And the reality is never forget Max Weber's definition of the nation state, which is a monopoly on the use, legitimate use of force to maintain order. Mm -hmm. You gotta have police if you want your courts to survive, he said, because that's the nature of the beast. And so that that is important to me. And the other thing which I think we're gonna pick up in the next few verses is of course the burning question here is what is Mishpat Tzedek, right? Because Mishpat is the activist judgment. Tzedek is, is justice or righteousness. It's an absolute standard. Right. And, and one of the problems is that these are words that get thrown around again. You look at everything that's happening in the protests in America and, and the, a lot of the social upset. People want justice. They want justice, want justice. But there's no live discussion of what that word actually means. Right. In fact, I think an active attempt to suppress that discussion, because the reality is there's no consensus. And therefore, you have to get into a real values discourse if you want to get anywhere. Yoram Chazoni has a very long article that just I came just, out. I just uh, read it. I got it off your Twitter feed, actually. Oh, yeah. It's good, right? Yeah. Very serious article. And, and, and one of the points that he makes is, is that Marxism has a powerful claim, which that societies have oppressed an oppressor. But one of the critiques that he points out about Marxism is that uh, while it's a kind of um, open-eyed critique of society, yeah. Yeah, it's the other side of it doesn't, is a very lame answer, which is, oh, yeah, when the oppressed will seize power – of the state, then they'll get rid of oppression, and the many examples of the so-called oppress oppressed, like for example in Russia, where the workers, you know, destroyed the 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 Romanov, <clears throat> uh, 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 what do you call it, tsar, uh, tsar, tsarism? I don't know the, uh, yeah, the, the Romanov dynasty. The people that took over, the, the the folks, the tsars, the Romanovs were were quite harsh on the people, but the people that took that. over. We're far from better. You know what I think of? You know what the image that sticks to me? I know this will touch you. I think of the Arabs of Gaza torching the greenhouses that we were forced to leave behind when our mm -hmm. brothers and sisters were taken from their home. Let me get into the justice or injustice of the disengagement. Just that image. It's like here they forced us to leave behind what could have made we, the, uh, the Jews of Gaza were growing incredibly. It was a pr productive economically and agriculturally. And, and here are these people that were supposedly the oppressed who gained power in that movement. What do they do? Destroy. They destroyed. Yeah, no, Chalzoni's point is well taken, is that Marxism works very well as a critique, but it's lousy as a, as a means to construct society. And that's, by right. the way, always true because deconstruction by definition can't build. Never forget that. Listen to the word. Deconstruction by definition cannot build because to build something means you, you have a, a bedrock belief which you will decide or you will believe or something is non-negotiable because otherwise you have nothing to build on. Right, And that's where the conservatism that Hazoni advocates is something which, consciously or not, anyone who builds a society has a conservative element upon which they're building. Right. That's a very interesting point. Uh, the revolutionaries have built societies, but they've been 
exactly the opposite of what their claim is. Well, they're always better at destroying societies than building them because right. in the end they have to reach for the reactionary stance just to build. Uh, by the way, I'm going to say I, I want to say something political, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to yeah, but I'm going to say something about American politics, which is not usually oh, that's my, less common. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, less common, and and I and I don't want to I don't want to overstate the case, and I don't want to get in too much into it. I just want to make a little point and put it all out there as a as this a is thought. All, this is all you framing your. Shutting me down when I want to respond. Not right? you. I meant the, the people out there. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying this with. Sometimes you want to say something without too much emphasis, not as emphatic. Yeah. I want to say it, and you could buy it or not buy it because I myself am not 100 percent certain of it. But I've been looking at the American uh, uh, elections that are happening in November, and I'm looking at the Democrats and what they're offering for president and vice president. And what I've written a few times on Twitter, and I see that people don't really want to kind of buy into it, is I don't think that the Democrats are playing to win. It just doesn't look to me like they want to win. They put up this guy. I'm not now taking a partisan side personally. I'm not. That guy, Joe Biden, he doesn't seem like a great candidate. He seems like he's not 100% well. He's certainly not making coherent phrases or he makes a lot of mistakes. He doesn't sound like a, a great and, and certainly not charismatic leader. And he, he sounds, you know, senile. And many, many people have pointed that out. And uh, Kamala Harris, for good and for bad, she's a very interesting and smart lady, but has not polled well in the past uh, in likability in, in the Democratic, uh, in the, what do you call them, the, the primaries. And I think to myself, wait a minute, you just put up two people that are not like awesome stars to win and to beat the incumbent president Trump. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it's just incompetence or just, you know, or maybe it's just didn't, it didn't work out or maybe they don't want to win. Maybe, maybe some elements in that party want another four years of Trump so that they could protest, do BLM, do more, do more deconstruction rather than construction. And then swoop in after four more years of, of this, of this out and out battle this battle that's in the media, but in the streets as well, sure. and then and then take over. But right now, to offer up a real change and to actually have to take the reins and responsibility, maybe somebody there doesn't want that, so they want to throw the fight. They want to feign it. Now, do I know this for a fact? Far from it. It's just a thought, and 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 I don't mean this as a partisan person. I mean this just like as somebody looking the situation, right? Looking from the outside in. Uh, but that's what it looks to me like. It doesn't look like they really want to win. That's the point. Like those are there, and not only that, there were other candidates that were more exciting, and could have been more exciting. Like a Michelle Obama as VP would have maybe taken the 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 cake. Yeah, and it, yeah. I hear what you're saying. I hear you saying. Okay, uh, thought. Yeah. Let's end parentheses there. Let's All go right. to something. But speaking of of America, New York. In my law school in New York, Cardozo Law. In downtown Manhattan, there was a slogan. The slogan was the the mission statement was uh, was right from chapter 17, 16, verse twenty. Tzedek That was the the motto of the school. Tzedek tzedek tirdof. Justice, justice shall you pursue. Leman This part they didn't they didn't add into it. That, yeah, uh, this is the part that always gets chopped. Right, they, right? They, they, so that you shall live the via- justice world. Loves this first. First three, three, first three words of this passage. The rest, they kind of whoopsie. Right, that's right. So it says, "Lamanti <laughs> so that you shall live, et and you shall inherit the land." But maybe they could see it more generally: the land of earth, 
you know, if you pursue well, justice. You can definitely uh, see this generally because there's a, but there is a direct connection here. I mean, two things to remember. First of all, absolute justice is always a pursuit. It is never an achievement. And this is the danger of the sort of utopian element in, in Marxist thought, like you were, you were speaking about before. I mean, like the critique of society and the application of sometimes even harsh justice is very important, but it's always a process, never a product. You will never achieve Zedek, right? But the constant pursuit of it is what roots you in the land, meaning in the reality of embodied life. You want to continue, you want to live and thrive as a society, then you have to make justice your constant pursuit. And, and I personally think that, forget America, this needs to become front and center within our society right now. It's just too much of a presence of um, of uh, corru corruption and, and interests within our government, within even just the social discourse. You know, I wouldn't say that we're rotten to the core, God forbid, but the rot is is too present. And and, and I, I just would like to see it, leaving aside again, for right now at least, the substance of what that justice is. Because I, I think it could it could be expressed in many ways. But so just a, as an aspiration. A, so a word that you've said a few times here, and it's an interesting, even within your language, I see um, utopian, utopianism as a utopian justice or a yearning for utopia, and also a pragmatic, this worldly, like pursue a utopian vision, but understand it in a real world. Yeah. A, a little bit reminds me of that famous Greenpeace slogan, one of the best slogans ever, which is think globally, act locally. Sure. Uh, and, and this is like think messianically, act temporally or something yeah. like that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Do, you, do you realize that encapsulates the, the sort of divine genius of Torah? Because it is a way in which one can live a gritty, earthy life. I mean, I'm working with a couple of chatanim, a couple of young men who are looking to get married. And we're learning the detailed dalachot of the most intimate parts of married life. Mm. Why? In order that they can build a vessel of marriage, which is an ideal that they're envisioning. And the I just, I just, I want to pause here for a second and explain to people. In Judaism, before you get married, you basically take a class with a mentor women with women, men with men. And they talk about, they talk about life, a married life in terms of halakha, in terms of Jewish law, and also advice, and also about intimacy and yeah. the laws of Jewish intimacy. And we yeah. talk about it so that we get a handle on these things and, and again, come to it from a conservative, or shall we say, tradition, and from the word tradition, a tradition of how to move forward in life, a wisdom, a, 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 a combined wisdom, a historical wisdom. Yeah, and my, and my specific point is that there are two primary values in my learning and what I've been taught that these laws embody, and they are sanctity and natural desire. The problem is without guidance and behavior, how are you ever supposed to make those things rule, real in your life? Because those are ideals to pursue, they're things to dream about, but the beauty of the genius, the divine genius of Torah, is you get actual grounded instructions. Sanctity is important to you. Here's how you build it into your life. Natural desire is the right thing and with the proper outlets. Here's how you build it in life. Here's how you balance the two. Here's how you how you have a discussion and a conversation. And it's it's just always fantastic to me. And it's such an important uh, thing to remember that the here the keyword is it's a constant pursuit and never an achievement. Very good. Okay. And and, and this, the, the question of, of utopia brings me to the next verse that I want to talk about. Chapter 17, Book of Dvarim. Torah portion is Shoftim. 
verse Tet, which is verse 9. This part, and this is a recurring theme in this Torah portion, is about today. Bring it, the law, to today. Bring, deal with the priests, the judges, the cops of today. Yeah. And it says like this, You're going to come to the priests, to the Levites, and to the judges. That'll be in those days. Or in your days, whenever you're going to be reading this. And you'll demand law, demand justice. They'll tell you the law. Meaning to say, Moses is saying, like, deal with the judges of your time. Yeah. Don't just hearken back to some kind of perfect utopia or, or previous time. Deal with the stuff that you have. And then it continues. And do according to the thing that they tell you. From that place, which is the Temple Mount, which God will pick. And keep to do exactly which they um, instruct you. And 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 later on, he's Moses is also going to say there will be a prophet uh, in in your time like me, a prophet that will come from your brothers like me. Deal with him. Listen down the line. Don't make a cult of the past. Yeah, no, which, is, which, is, which is funny, right? Because we call this Torah the Torah of Moshe, right? right. And and we and we're very uh, 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 you know into the past, and we're, we're always committed. living. What's that? We're quite committed to it, right? We're quite. But then he says. Yeah, but but watch out. And we 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 have a, a concept called halacha kibatrai, which means that the halacha as it's brought down to you. Well, no, it literally means halacha is like the later authorities. The, right, which is the, the later authorities, which is basically like read the halachic law, but then ask the rabbi of the time, because there may be something called the internet, and things will be different, or electricity, or an aeroplane. Yeah, a microwave. For example, the, the halacha that you're allowed to fly in an airplane on Shabbos as long as you put your seatbelt on because that way you're wearing the airplane. <laughs> Come on. That was a joke. <laughs> it's that joke, was a joke, joke, everybody. Joke. That was, a, that, was a, that was an inside baseball joke. Yeah, it was an inside baseball joke. But the, 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 the key here is that Rashi, I think, says it so beautifully. He says, right. He says, okay, why did the Pasuk say the Mimaim, who's in those days, because you know what? He may not be Moses. He may not be Shmuel. He may not be Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai or Rav Moshe Feinstein. You know who he is? You got. You got to live in the world you actually live in. It's not just what you're saying, which is that the world keeps changing. And, and the reason that we have Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torahs, it's the constant application of an unchanging written Torah to an evolving world. You're going to remember that. That's a given in the Torah that you're going to be constantly moving in, in a changing world. But it's also just reality, like you said. Listen, you don't like, you don't think it could have been better. So work on that. Meanwhile, this is what you got. Deal with reality. Don't get nostalgic and think woulda, coulda, shoulda was better than when. That's so that's so interesting and important for us here in Israel because we're living in a time where we are reborn in our land, re-embodied in our land, as, as you, you say a lot of times. Uh, and we got to hearken back on the one hand to archaeology and to the past and to the Sure. And, to, and to previous commonwealths like the Maccabees. But then we're also obviously in a uh, uncharted territory. Completely. Right? And we and we have to, you know, move it forward. And, and right now I see um, uh, a comment, a comment, somebody commenting uh, on our broadcast, Galia, she says, everybody just wants Mashiach. 
And I just want to say right, right immediately here, which is, um, I guess it's a perfect balance of, of what we're talking about, which is utopia. We yearn for Mashiach. But at the same time, as you and I discussed in the, in the past, sometimes we push back on that because we don't want to give up. We don't want to give up our responsibility and the call to establish and build a Jewish state with law and to actually get into the nitty gritty and deal with it and build the country uh, and not just say, well, this other dude is going to take care of everything. Yeah. As we've discussed, I actually don't. That's not how I conceive of Mashiach at all. The salvation model is not right. how I conceive of it. Um, we, we've talked enough about that, but I would like to um, just point out an important duke, which you read, but I think deserves some emphasis, is that the only way in which past and present and ultimately, of course, future can be woven into a whole is if you have a center around which to do it. And one of the um, themes of the whole book of Devarim, and particularly of this parsha, is Makom but there's going to be a place, God tells them, I'm going to choose, where you're going to take this whole Torah I've given you, which you're not allowed to change, and you're going to slam it into the present in order to get to the future on a constant basis. And that's going to ultimately be in Yerushalayim on the Temple Mount, because that's the place where heaven and earth connect. And in and, and, and one of the reasons that we are, in many ways, as a people, somewhat stuck, both in our halachic system and our in our ability to adjudicate, because it's true halacha kibat try that 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 the general principle is that the law follows the latter authorities, but we also are to a certain degree lack the structures to do this hora'a. I mean, in the pasuk it says a kolacher yorucha. There's a very important type of instruction. In fact, most linguists believe that 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 is the root meaning of the word Torah. Torah comes from the same word as as yore. It's a practical instruction. But the ability to actually do instruction on that level ended for us in the 6th century. And, and since then, the, it has not been halacha kibatrai. And what we're looking for is it's the reason that the Sanhedrin, the high court, sits on the Temple Mount, because that's the place where past meets present in order to create a viable future. So I just think it's important that that, that, that reference is here in the verse. It's not just a casual... Oh, they got to sit somewhere. It's a are, you, are you talking about the fact that there is no Sanhedrin today, and that there's no uh, Torah legal body that is a central body that that can decide big questions that we're basically pushing off, not deciding in our time, um, um, and kind of the the writ large, like we're kind of we kind of treating this time of of the of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel as a kind of better version than exile. But this not is, quite. This is as usual with some slight adjustments, right? right? As opposed to the very revolutionary time in which we sit. I mean, listen, I don't want to go too far into it, but it, certainly in Rav Cook's conception, the, the Sanhedrin, which is in, inextricably bound up with the temple, it's important to remember these are not like two separate institutions which coincidentally happen to sit in the same place. Like, no, that's not the way it works, right? Um, the the but Rav Cook speaks about how, like, all the questions that really plague us today, whether if the, what plagues you is questions of gender and sexuality or whether what plagues you is questions of the relationship between Jew and non-Jew or wh whatever it may be, all those questions will be in the power of the Sanhedrin to adjudicate on the level of Moshe Torah Sinai. Mm -hmm. That's a right. powerful, powerful way to actually bring ourselves into the present in order to, to shape the future. Yeah, and, and I, I want to tell you that... Um... Uh, I've been learning a booklet called uh, uh, the Shichnoti Drishu, which is about going up to the Temple Mount. 
And then I saw two rabbis really calling for uh, one thing, which was, God bless you, which is Rabbi Tkachinsky, a God all in our time, uh, and also Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu. Uh, they are not yet calling for a Sanhedrin uh, on the Temple Mount and all that, but they did ask both of them for a mechanical, technical, but a very important step, which is to create a house of prayer on the Temple Mount. They said, let's start there. Praying on the Temple Mount is a commandment. Grace disgrace to our people and our nation state that there is no such thing right that's my opinion right but 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 you know what i thought to myself this is actually doable uh <laughs> it's actually doable this is this is doable within within the reality right now south uh the south all we uh, need is a small group of committed people who simply wouldn't give up on it right okay um now we talked about worship of the past which is dangerous but there's also a danger in the worship of the future or a need to find out the future. There's two yeah. kinds of utopias, really. There's the utopia that you look to the past. There's the utopia that you look to the future. Uh, but then there's something, maybe it's not exactly utopia, but it's a need to know the future, which is uh, necromancy and other kinds of uh, fortune telling. Right, which, anxiety-driven living. Right. And God detests, he says, that um, that mode. He says that the nations that were in the land before that, they dealt a lot with it. By the way, I didn't get a chance to visit it, but I'm hoping to visit the Museum of Philistine Culture in Ashdod. And it's really there with, with tons and tons of stuff. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Um, but in any case, they certainly dealt with necromancy and other things like that. Uh, and then the Torah finishes off with a flurry, one of the most famous verses, certainly in these parshiot, which is, Tamim Instead of instead of worshiping the past or the dead and trying to figure out the future and spitting out bones and and trying to read them, how do the bones fall and all kinds of stuff like that? Yeah, or or you know, slaughtering a, a goat and, and seeing it's if its innards were nice. Entrails. Right, and forget that. God says, Tamim uh, be whole with Hashem your God. Baal Shem Tov says, Tamim, if you're whole, you will be with Hashem your God. Rashi says, uh, Walk with him with simplicity and look to him. Don't try to figure out the future. Whatever comes upon you, receive with wholeness, with, with acceptance, and then you will be part of him and his lot. You will be you will be part of uh, of him when you right when you when you accept Hashem's decrees, life challenges, life situations. And here, here, just to get a little metaphysical for just a second, we are not – our choice, our range of choices is extremely limited. We are not really we – we don't have as much choice as we think. Not what our soul is, not what our body is, not when we were born and to whom we were born, what time and what station in life. And many other things are, 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 are not within our grasp to decide. And so when, when you, when you get to the bottom of it, you realize you really do have to accept so much. Uh, and, and, and sure you should strive and be ambitious, et cetera. But at the same time, there's so much to accept uh, okay. in, in, in God's, the, what God has given us in this world or, or another acceptance is, you know, certain limitations that humanity has. We live in, and the greatest limitation of them all is death. Death, Yeah, for sure. Right. Or body. You could just say the same thing, right? Body in itself is limitation. Earth is limitation. Uh, Those three have obviously an intimate relationship. Death, right, right. There are limitations that 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 that, uh, 
the you know or or if you see maybe maybe another way to say it is like gravity is like time is like death it's like if you you know what i mean you can't really all break. A drag drag they bring you down they bring you down and and you yeah. can't really defeat it you can't yeah. really defeat it um and so um and so but god says with all that i tell you in the torah receive accept god's leadership his his decrees with wholeness yeah. with acceptance uh with love with 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 appreciation with with Understanding that it's his world, as in uh, in uh, Shawshank Redemption, it's your world, boss. Sometimes you got to say to God, "It's your world, boss." Yeah, I mean, it's mimut. There's a simplicity. It's like don't tie yourself in knots over this. Don't try to right. come up with sophisticated explanations. Okay, maybe there's a place for that. But bottom line, it's not going to serve you. Right, but still, though, ironically and and beautifully, hitalech lefanai, walk before me. Well, uh, now, yes, that's what it's saying. It's not here. It, it, it's about Abraham. The original statement, exactly. Right. I wanted to go back to that is that 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 level of tmimut, which Rashi hints at in this verse in his comment there, that level of tmimut isn't a, isn't just a passive acceptance of Thy will be done, religious fatalism. What right. happens is when you're able to receive what comes to you as an invitation from God, you become the place in which the divine will unfolds forward. That's why Abraham. You're out in front of me, Abraham. Or Abraham says to God, where are we going? God says back, I don't know. Where are we going? It's the same way in your own life. You know, God's sending you all these things. You might think that your job is to just be passive. and No, your job is to receive them as from God right. and act upon that premise. Right. And but and also, Chazal tell us, our, our, our sages tell us, uh, Like yeah. in, in the path that a person wants to go, they take him. The, the 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 global energies the 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 path will take him the way he wants to go life is not an arbitrary string of events and whether you want to take the sort of a priori stance like you're pointing out that god is sending you the things that um that will take you where you want to go or where you want to take um say the stance the more postmodern stance, say that Ralph cook says that the, that what human consciousness is is the capacity to string together the events of life into what i would call a meaningful narrative Either way you look at it, it means that 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 very delicate balance, which we call tmimut, of being able to receive what is and yet not become completely passive in the face of it, is the key to living a life of a vote of divine service. It's not an easy thing we're discussing. There's there's, oh, there's no. there, 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 there is there is a dichotomy here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there is a dichotomy because on the one hand we said accept, on the other hand, lead. Yeah, it's not a passivity. And the question is, is what's, what does active acceptance look like? And I would say that the word that, that always um, helps me is I, is I try to look at the things that happen in my life as an invitation. Instead of saying, why did this happen to me? It's, a, what can I make of this? Mm -hmm. Each mm -hmm. thing that happens is, is a question to you. What does this mean? What does this mean? That's right. That's you know, right. It's an invitation to therefore develop its meaning. You know, yesterday I went to the bowling alley and yeah, then when we came back home, uh, and I'm not, I'm, I, please, people don't don't understand, don't misunderstand. Uh, this is not a family of bowlers. I'm not a bowler, and uh, and uh, with the shoes and the old like you know the shirt and whatnot. No, I don't have a shirt and I don't have the shoes. And we were using the bumpers. The bumpers were out. There was no uh, what do you call those gutters? There was no gutters. Oh, okay, the, 
Come on. It, it was kids. It was it was a five year old, four nine year olds, and a twelve year old, and and the parents and and uh, we lost big time. Uh, I was by far the fastest bowler, but no matter how fast I bowled, it was less. I hit less pins altogether down than the people who bounced it, bounce, bounce, bounce. Uh, and you know, when we came home, when we came home, um, it was very, very loud there. It was very, very, very loud for a person like me. I, I have to have headphones, and I can't, I can't, I cannot deal with it, with that kind of noise. Um, but uh, the reason I say this is when we came home, I was like, oh, bummer. We we didn't say a Dvar Torah. Hmm. And maybe I forgot because of the noise and and the action and the eye stuff, uh, but but uh, you know it's it's easy to uh, forget to mention God to bring Him in. Uh, it's it's easy to be living in the moment and kind of forget the you know you know the thing about God is He's oftentimes invisible, uh, yeah. and 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 you you can given the wrong kind of environment totally just kind of like you know forget it. Okay, so I, I made up for it when, when we came home. Another thing is we have a commandment, when, we, when we're on the path to also talk divrei Torah, uh, we, in our family, we try very hard to, to fulfill that. Like if we're in the cart, like you have to say a divrei Torah, that's like an important thing because the Torah tells us like when you're on the pathway. But it's easy to forget sometimes on the road. Sure. It's easy to, to, to forget God and to bring him in as a, as a, as a big mitzvah. Okay, um, so we talked about not present worship, not past worship, uh, but to draw from the past, to look to, to yet to yearn for for the future and to lead towards the future. Um, you make your actions matter in the present, right? And now let's talk about the circle. Uh, the circle is uh, found in the verse, um, chapter twenty, verse twenty-one, kind of famous. Lo do not avert your eyes when somebody does a, a bad thing. Nefesh benefesh, soul for a soul, ein bein, an eye for an eye, shen b'shen, a tooth for a tooth, yad b'yad, a hand for a hand, regel b'ragel, a foot for yeah. a foot. Um, and um, you know what? What the first thing is? The first thing is there is, and this is a Jewish concept. There is karma. There well, is karma in this. Yeah, I, I really deeply dislike. You don't like that terms. No, I mean oh, cultural appropriation. No, I don't care about the cultural appropriation. Did I, did I just culturally appropriate? to reach. I'm sorry. I'll hate. I'll to hate. another to another culture in order <laughs> to explain concepts which originate <laughs> our own. Uh, which is which is what you mean is that there's justice. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean a. Yeah, but I mean a a justice of some kind of karmic nature, meaning to say justice in the sense that 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 one's actions create a reality which responds that we live in a mm. responsive creation, which is a mm. general principle of Torah. Which, by the way, in a fascinating sense, the physicists now in the twenty first century are starting to come around. We talk about like the butterfly effect. It's not just that the 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 nature of where where quantum physics is headed in, in terms of the role that consciousness plays in the physical substance of creation. I don't go too far with this, but 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 it's it, it, the the general model of understanding the relationship between your consciousness and creation used to be my consciousness is basically a 
computer, let's think of it as, it's called the computer model, it's mapping the world around me. But it's not affecting it. I only way I can affect the world is through my actions, right? Whereas already in the early 20th century, there was a dawning awareness amongst physicists that actually my very observation of the world begins to change it. Right. To the point where we're now coming along much, much further beyond the sort of theoretical, what's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, much further down the line in quantum physics and understanding that to some degree, we create the world through our interaction with it. Mm-hmm. Just the assumption of the Torah, which is why Tamim Tiai Meshem Adokhetha is so important. Like, because the reality is, you know, so we didn't get into it, but there's a big question. It's like, why is the Torah so head up about these necromancing sorcerer, wizard, magician guys? I mean, that's all nonsense, right? It's not it's not real, right? So so one answer, like the Rambam says, no, it's not real, but you should still be careful of the studio because everybody thinks it's real. The Rambam says, no, no, no. Like, the, the way that God created the world is such that you believe in these evil powers and you give them reality. Mm-hmm. You live in the world which you choose. And that's part of the expression is eye for an eye, like you're saying. That's why I don't like the, the term karma. We lack a good term. Karma's got a good... Also, I have to admit that I don't actually have a deep understanding of what karma is. I, I know the way it gets used in popular Western culture. But I, I think the, the Rashi on karma is what oh. goes around comes around. Yeah, but that's my point. That's how it's used in Western right, culture. Right, right. I don't know if that's actually what it means. All right. Um, right. I, I don't like in general. I don't feel... I think it's a it's a... It's a discredit to Torah when we we reach for concepts from other cultures to articulate. All right, actually maybe. I'll, I'll counter that and say sometimes sometimes there is a wisdom in another culture that when you look through that prism, you're like, oh, I get that better now. For me, as I've said many times on the show, uh, concepts like, I'll give you, I'll give you just a few. Uh, sometimes I, uh, and I, and, and of course, don't take it out of context, people, but sometimes I say, uh, when when I look at Shmuel Hanavi, the tomb of Samuel the prophet above Yerushalayim, I say, if I had to borrow a term, I would call him the quote-unquote patron saint of Jerusalem, right? Because he's like looking over and he yearned for this Jerusalem and helped David find it. And there he is and he's looking down upon him and his tomb was liberated on the 28th of ER. That's one example. Another example is sometimes I explain to people what the Jewish community of Hebron is about. So I say, well, in 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 another culture, we would be called the Knights of the Machpelah, the protectors of the Machpelah. That's what we'd be called, the Knights of the Machpelah. And so people are like, oh yeah, 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 I get it now. I get it, you know. Yeah. So sometimes cultural things like help us understand even our deeper, more foundational. Uh, uh, sometimes they've developed the lingo for us. I hear it. I'm just a little bit of a cultural absolutist. I don't, I don't like it. No. It's just a one cultural, uh, what do you call it? That thing. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go on. We, we, right. have a, we, we have a few minutes left. Uh, a, a big part of this Torah portion is dedicated to war. What is it good for? I mean, I can name several things, but... Uh, um, the, um, the Torah portion at the end after helping you think about how to establish a, a society at home where, where shall we say, the many wars that people have within a society are to be judged. When you do a, a, a bad action to another person, it's a little war. When you, um, when you kill somebody inadvertently with negligence, it's a kind of war. You were rough. You, weren't, you didn't play safe, and you were violent, maybe, maybe without malice, but you were violent towards another. And so... Uh, mankind needs justice in order to straighten out 
the roughness of inner societal war. Mm-hmm. Now the Torah portion will say, okay, let's now talk about actual war with the other, that you're having actual declared war. And it says in chapter 20, verse 1, it's a very famous verse because it was a song during the Gush Katif period. Right? So, so if you go out to war upon your enemy, Rashi says, uh, be careful to recognize that your enemy is your enemy. Don't try to think that your enemy is your friend. Know when to make war, know when to make peace. Uh, and he says, and, and you've, uh, you saw a horses, chariots, a nation that's bigger than you. Do not fear them because Hashem, Hashem, your God, is with you. He's taking you out of Egypt, i.e. hearken back to the past when, when you defeated a much superior army. And then later on it, it says, talks about the priest of war, uh, the priest who is um, anointed for war, which is such a cool cool thing. By the way, my mother describes a real-life Kohen Mashuach Milchama. She describes that Rav Goren, she remembers how Rav Goren was standing during the Yom Kippur War on the bridge to the Galil called the Gesher Benot Yaakov and was waving on the troops, literally a man standing there, waving on this rabbi man uh, standing uh, and, and waving on the troops and giving them strength. And if people, by the way, don't, don't understand the context there, that was a point at which Many of the generals of Israel felt that the country was about to fall. Mm. The Geshem Yaakov was the last line of defense to prevent the Syrian army from pouring off the Golan and straight across the northern part of the country to Haifa. Do you have a show at JewishStory.co about the Yom Kippur War? Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. We just we we will this coming season, which please God, I'm going to start recording tomorrow. Um, it's going to go from 1967 to 1978. Mm-hmm. And that's found at Twitter. Yeah, it's coincidentally. On and also on the Land of Israel Network, thelandofisrael.com. So and you can always check me out Facebook. That's right. That's right. Facebook.com forward slash Rav Mike Foyer. Right. Rav Mike Foyer. You'll yeah. find it. Yeah. You'll find it. That's right. Thank you, Google. Um, let's oh, go on. Snowboarder named Rav Mike who gets a lot of my traffic, I think. Oh, does he? That's what he thinks about you. Um, um, and then it says it has a verse, you know, don't be afraid because Hashem your God, verse 4, Ki Hashem, lokechem, Hashem your God is going walking with you. He's fighting for you with your enemies to, 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 to save you, to uh, give you, to redeem you. Um, and then it goes on to the very famous uh, triad of things that excuse you from the army, first year of marriage, first year of building a house, first year of a, uh, a vineyard. Uh, and, and the fourth one, which is the, the real kind of climax of it all, which is, um, what's that? If, if you're, you're afraid. afraid. If, you're, if you're plain old afraid, Rabbi Akiva, according to Rashi, says that's what this is all really about. Right. If, you're, if you're afraid. And if you're afraid. You don't, don't have to not- admit you're afraid. You can just say, oh, I haven't actually lived in my house yet. And you know, run off the battlefield. But yes. You know what always strikes me? What's that? Is that the ones that are afraid leave. Does that mean that the other ones are not afraid? Like I've been, I've been, I've been in those situations where you gearing up for, 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 for combat and everybody's afraid, you know? Uh, But, but I guess the, I guess the point is who can process that fear and overcome it uh, as opposed to those who really can't. Well, let's look at the pasuk a second. Look at at uh, chapter twenty, verse eight. 
Because that's mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yasu is talking to Right? They add and they say to the people, "Amu miyish yare hayare v'racha levav." See, there's two things there. It's not just that you're afraid, because like you're pointing out, anybody is afraid in that situation unless you happen to be stupendously stupid, <laughs> you know, like on some level, you know. But but their heart has gone soft, meaning right. meaning courage, even in English, rooted in the Latin of core, of heart, is the capacity of your heart to, to overcome your fear and move you to right action. So, so it's not that they're afraid alone. It's that they're afraid and rachlevav. Their heart, they just don't have it in them to overcome. That's the problem. The problem is not being afraid. The problem is actually having that the rachlevav that prevents them from being courageous. Mm-hmm. Remember that courage is not a lack of fear. Courage is, is actually an existence of fear and the commitment to overcome it. That's right. That's right. Uh, when I was uh, in the army, uh, we jumped out of airplanes um and um there was a guy who was a really tough guy and he would get into the airplane get ready to jump and this is what would happen to him he would just be like hey i'm ready to go and he would just pass right out right. there was something in his uh in his in his psyche it's like you whatever yeah he could not handle the airplane he could not handle it and he was uh, subsequently kicked out of the fighting uh paratrooper units cuz he just could not Right, and, and it was funny. He wasn't acting scared, but something in his body would just shut off. Wow. Uh, uh, when when I was a, fun, a funny story that happened to me is that I heard a rumor that they would ask you the question, "Who wants to jump first from the airplane?" So I'm yeah. like, "Oh man, everybody's gonna want that." So I gotta make sure that I get it because everybody's going to want it. So here's my tactic. When they start asking that question, I'm going to jump up and yell as loud as I can saying me, me, me. Okay. And I'm like, I'm going to win this thing. So, <laughs> so one, the, like, the, day before the, jump, <laughs> the day before the jump, they're like, they're like, all right, we just want to ask a question. Who wants to jump? I was like, that's it. I jumped up. We were all sitting on a big grass. I jumped up. I'm like, me, 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 me. And, and I, they were all looking at me like this. And I, and I turned around and I saw everybody else just sitting there like this. Like, do not pick me. Okay? So I, was, I misjudged what everybody else was feeling. Oh, sorry about that. Knock that down. I totally misjudged the feelings that other people had uh, about this, this thing. And guess who got to jump out of the airplane first? It was me. And uh, and that really just meant that I got to actually stand at the doorway for about a minute and a half, which is exactly an eternity uh, when you're standing at a doorway. See, you see, when the door opens in the airplane, you just something in your body says, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And when you stick your fingers on the outside of the door, which is what you have to do, and uh-huh. you're like and the wind is on your nails and on your fingers and you're like. This is wrong. And then you see the little tiny cars driving on the highway and you're like, you, I remember thinking, I was like, you bastard, you are listening to radio right now. And I'm about to jump out of this airplane. Okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, but you know what? It was, it was, a, it was a great experience and I got to jump out of that airplane. Uh, and, and it was, and it was all right. Uh, and it was, it was all right. We of course didn't use it in war. Uh, Israel's Israel hasn't jumped officially in a, in a big army capacity. Um, uh, from airplanes in uh, in war since uh, since um, 
the Mitla Pass, I think in 1948, is that? Uh, 56, 56, yeah. So we haven't we haven't jumped out of airplanes. But in any case, I have no idea why I'm talking about this. Uh, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yes, very you your very astute observation that like doesn't seem to make sense. Isn't everybody scared? And the answer is, of course, everybody's scared. Yeah. The problem here is Rachlebov. Right, right. And that guy, that dude, he he looks like he couldn't do it. He couldn't do that mission. Um, whatever, whatever his you know, no judgment hit there. No, uh, but, and, and I think that that's what the tour is saying here. Is it's like we're not interested in judgment. We're interested in victory. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 the reality is is that victory in the world is always a partnership between humanity and God. And in this case, between Amisrael and God. And so therefore, since God doesn't really actually need us, we're definitely the junior partner. What he needs is our courage to be a vessel for his work. The reason I had to pause just for a second here is because I had to look somebody something up and we're finishing right now. And that is really about, about a last part of this Torah portion that I want to talk about, which is when you find a dead body between two cities. We know that even the high priest, who is not supposed to become... What's it called? Uh, impure. impure uh, is that the word? He's not supposed to become impure to a dead body. Even a high priest, defiled. Even, even a high priest walking down the street and he sees a dead body that nobody is taking care of. He is commanded to stop everything and to become defiled in order to take care of this dead body. That is the level of which we sanctify, ironically, kind of, we sanctify the body and we see the, uh, the original thing we learned in Genesis, which is God has created in the image of a man is created in the image of God. The reason I had to look something up is because uh, less than a year ago, uh, there was a young man by the name of Dvir Sorek. And Dvir Sorek was murdered uh, right in between this town that I'm in right now and our next door town, which is, I have to tell you, Rabbi Mike, a street worth. There's a street between the entrance of this town and its entrance of the, it's the other side of an interchange of a, of a small interchange. Sure. I know. And this Dvir Sorek was murdered right there between two guard posts. Mm. Okay. And I never forgot that this to me was like, wow, he fell between the cracks, Dvir Sorek. And the, the defenders of Israel missed it. They didn't see the attack exactly there. And I always thought to myself, wow, that murder was to me the story of Egla Arufa. Like we did not spill this, hand, uh, this blood, but also somehow we didn't manage to protect this boy right between uh, our towns. This was less than a year ago. Hmm. Uh, and it was, it, was a, it was a powerful, uh, it was a powerful, I just wanted to make sure I remember the name, Dvir Sorek, who happens to actually be, Allah uh, Shalom, the son of... Um, uh, of a very famous author here in Israel. Uh, in any case, um, uh, th- that's something that happened. And the Torah portion goes on to say that there has to be an elaborate ceremony that takes place in order to say, whoa, you know, we don't know who this man exactly belonged to. And there's something wrong about that. Somehow, somehow we have to say we didn't spill this blood, but it's like we kind of a little bit did if, we, if, if this guy fell between the cracks. Yeah, in many ways, it's one of the most all-embracing moral statements of the Torah, which is that you can't divest yourself of responsibility. You, you, you mean there is obviously gradations. We're not going to blame. It's not like you know, like the the Sanhedrin, like Rashi says in the Midrash, like when they say our hands didn't spill this blood. No one actually thinks they killed this guy, but 
the reality is is that our obligation is proactively to create a world in which su- such things can't happen, like you're pointing out. And if and if someone like Devir Suri gets murdered on our roads, then we've allowed a world to develop. We haven't taken the level of responsibility for the safety and well-being of people. Then, then yeah, on some level, we are responsible. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Mike, for uh, the Torah portion is called Shoftim. Uh, there's a lot of laws in this uh, Torah portion. Uh, it's about question? society. Huh? It's about yeah. it's about how to build society, uh, how to keep evil at bay, and allow. It's really it's really mostly about ha- how to keep evil at bay, with very few points about how to serve God properly. This Torah portion is really about how do we allow justice to flourish by pursuing that justice, which means also suppressing evil, building uh, social structure, which will allow the world to flourish. A very important uh, Torah portion for everybody to learn, especially today when we're trying to rebuild the Jewish society in the land in the Third Commonwealth. Rabbi Mike Foyer, uh, Rav Mike Foyer, people can find you by going to jewishstory.co. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Yishai Fleischer Show uh, on the Land of Israel Network podcast and also on YouTube, uh, Periscope, and uh, Facebook. And a lot of people are commenting. Um, and I'm going to get to their comments in a second, but I'm going to let you go and thank you again for your time for being with us. You're very welcome. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom to you, Rabbi Mike. Thank you so much for your awesome and erudite uh, knowledge and sharing it with us. Bye. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and what an awesome Torah portion we have. What an awesome Torah we have. And, and so I put up this uh, picture of, uh, of defund the police, uh, because what I'm really trying to say is that, of course, we should be uh, funding the uh, or emotionally uh, and physically uh, the um, the continued law and order that we need in our land. Please check out yishaifleischer.com forward slash donate to help us keep the show uh, loud and proud and free and broad. Uh, and so that's uh, part of what you do to help fund the spiritual uh, judgment and police and, and light in this world. All right, folks, that was awesome to have Rav Mike Foyer with us uh, on the show. And I'm joined here by Maka Fleischer. Maka, thanks so much for sticking around. That was a great show. Uh, that was a great show, a little bit long, but also a lot of great content. And for those people who have nothing better to do, uh, I think that was that was really fun. People here just get more for their money. That's right. Uh, which is which is actually uh, your money is very helpful to keep the show free, uh, widely dispersed, and continually awesome. So please check out yishaifleischer.com forward slash donate. We uh, a spoiler. We're about to set up our Patreon uh, soon. That's pretty exciting. So look forward to 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 Let that. Let us know what you think of Patreon. Yeah, are you, you are you a Patreon fan? Let me know are about that. Are you a patron that. of Patreon? That's right. Uh, check out our uh, our sponsors, the Hebron Fund, which keeps the Jewish community of Hebron safe, open, strong, and and touristic, and building towards the future, and of course, holy. So that's hebronfund.org. Check out uh, some True Blue Juice String. This is your opportunity to get some and get, you know, you don't have to be blue any longer because you can be... You can go into the new year with you could be true blue, new blue strings. That's right. You could be true blue. And that's Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, and coupon code Yishai, Ooh, just that easy. Y-I-S-H-A-I. And check out our newest sponsor, IsraWines.com, IsraWines.com. Coupon code Yishai will get you some 10% off off nice. of Israeli wines, which you, you get those wines ready desperately need because sober is overrated. And and what you could do is is uh, really be drunk on life with the wines of the land of Israel. Lastly, I want to request a small request from you. 
Uh, we are getting our show out on a lot more podcast um, aggregators, you know, Stitchers, Spotify's, etc., wherever you get your podcast. Do me a favor and leave a positive rating if that's how you feel. Or if you feel like leaving a negative one, don't just worry don't. about it. Yeah. So just uh, do me a favor. That, that really makes a difference. Uh, and so other people can see it and believe you uh, that, that we try real hard to make a good show for you and connect you to the land of Israel. And connectivity is what we're all about. So that's it. Uh, I just want to wish everybody blessings from the land of blessings. And I want to finish off the show by wishing you um, blessings for a new month of Elul, the preparatory month, preparation E. Okay, preparation Elul for Rosh Hashanah. So, so get get started on preparing for the the high holidays. I want to thank Moshe Herman, Ben Bresky, and Tabitha for getting the show out through the netwaves right to your ears. Lots of love and lots of blessings from the land of blessings. Malka Fleischer, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat and Chodesh Tov. This week on the Land of Israel Fellowship, what does it mean to love thy fellow as thyself? They're training us to think of the world in a new way, fundamentally different than every other pagan at that time. To hold God and man in one thought and at one time. Love your fellow as yourself. That is the most famous quote in the Bible. Secular people know it, Muslims know it, Christians know it, Hindus know it, Buddhists know it, but the vast majority of people don't know the end of the verse. And the ending of the verse makes the command so much deeper. And you shall love your neighbor like yourself. I am Hashem. Join Jeremy Gimpel, Ari Abramowitz, and more for this exclusive private ongoing seminar every Sunday to register, click on thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship.